now entering the Phantom Squad Podcast. Enjoy the madness. Hey everyone, this is going to be another episode of the Phantom Squad Podcast. My guest this week is actor and creature actor, Mr. John Davey. How's it going? It's going very well, thank you, and thanks for having me on. Awesome, great. Thanks for coming on. So how far do you usually, do you usually drive to location when you're working on Doctor Who? Or Yeah, so I live in a city called Bristol. Um, which is only about an hour away from Cardiff, where Doctor Who shot. Um, and uh, yeah, Brist- Bristol's a great place. It's quite um, it's quite a fun city. People people don't take themselves too seriously. Uh, famous things in pop culture from Bristol. Well, Paul McGann came from Bristol. Ooh. Or he lives in Bristol, as well as possibly London. Um, what else in fandom and popular culture is Bristol related? Banksy, um, uh, Massive Attack, Porter's Head, the bands, um, obviously me, (laughs) (laughs) uh, oh, oh, and more infamously, uh, we started off the trend of ripping down statues. Oh my gosh. So, uh, so quite famously, the town of Bristol is a port town, and and basically all of our money was pretty much built on slave trade, um, and and strangely enough, and everybody knew it, and and everybody ignored it. But there's there was a, a guy called um, Fred Colston who was a famous merchant, and he made all his money from the slave trade. Um, but there's a, a music venue named after him, several streets, uh, a girls' school named after him, um, and a big statue of him. And uh, everybody for years have, have had problems uh, with it. And then um, obviously all the problems came to a head and they ripped his statue down and, and threw it in the docks. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's uh, I was because uh, I look around. I have a couple of friends that live in UK and all over the place, and uh, yeah, a lot of them they're like, yeah, a lot of people don't know. Uh, they only know Liverpool and London because of the Beatles. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like, yeah, it's like, but there's a whole another whole island here. Like, I think they lived off the I can't remember what it was called, but it was like the little small island that's off of uh, UK but still part of the UK. It's Isle of it's Wight. not a, yeah, yeah, that one, yeah, 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 yeah. That's um, yeah, that's kind of an interesting place. Is is uh, there's a prison there, uh, and yeah, I think I think the the Isle of Wight itself, it's kind of uh, um, to to quote uh, the the League of Gentlemen. I don't know if you're uh, familiar with the with the show. Um, it's a local a local island for local people. <laughs> to, be, to be polite oh, there's a good crossover actually with that show have you watched the league of gentlemen i have not um a majority i know a lot of stuff that i've watched there i've watched uh, a little bit of downtown abbey sarah jane adventures anything pretty much doctor who spinoff and uh what is the one show uh 
I think it might have been filmed in Bristol. Um, the IT crowd. Oh, what was that? Sorry. Uh, the IT crowd. Oh right, yeah, yeah. Well, the uh, in fact, if you could find it, it may it probably might be on BritBox for anyone listening. But it was a show that came out probably twenty years ago, and I think there's four or five se- seasons and some Christmas specials. But it was called. Um, the League of Gentlemen, but it was written by uh, Mark Gatiss. Obviously, there's a Doctor Who uh, link there. Yes. Um, Reese Shearsmith and Steve Pemberton. And I think both of them, or at least one of them, have actually been in Doctor Who as well. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it, it is absolutely brilliant and is uh, amazingly written. But it's, like a, it's basically about a small, strange village where uh, the, the tagline is, there's a shop there, and, and the owners keep on saying, it's a local shop for local people when outsiders come in. But it's, if anyone watches it, or if you watch it, it, it's absolutely brilliant. It's just so bizarrely off the wall. Uh, as, and basically, they pay, they pay multiple characters. So Rishi Smith, Steve Pemberton, um, and Mark Gatiss all probably play about four or five different characters so um oh that's awesome yeah it's a, a definitely you know what now i've now i've mentioned it i've got to go back and watch it because, <laughs> uh, it's, it's getting me smiling again yeah great british show i just got into recently i think because i edited on hulu that my buddy was like oh yeah that's a staple here it's a uh, horrible histories with that whole troop of guys yeah yeah that's uh yeah that it's good fun it's a good I hated history at school. Well, to be honest, I, I thought school was pretty useless, what they were actually <laughs> trying to teach us. None of it was relevant for the real world. Um, but, oh, yeah. Uh, but yeah, it makes, it makes history fun. And drunk history as well, which is... Yes. Uh, yeah, which, it, which is amazingly funny, but unfortunately the people that work on it all end up being alcoholics and having a lot of problems. Oh, Yeah. <laughs> Yes, for sure. I know you've done like, I want to talk about Doctor Who side, but like, I know you've worked on like other stuff besides Doctor Who, so we can talk about that too. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, that's all good. But yeah, just leaving, leaving what you, what you may. Um, I don't like interviews. I like conversations. So yes, yes. That's what I told somebody. I was like, I told, I, I tell people, I was like, I know I got them relax when they go from sitting straight to, yeah, you know, kind of chillax back. I'm like, I kind of realized, yeah, okay. We're in the conversation. You're comfortable now. Yeah. It's not like it, suit tie formal. It is quite funny because I've, um, I, I've never liked being told what to do and I don't like having a boss. So I've managed to navigate my way for about 25 years not being in full-time employment and having a boss. It just doesn't really work with me. Um, uh, but it is quite interesting when when sometimes I go to Dot2 conventions and they're doing a panel. And my, my objective is to try and just make people laugh. Um, whereas a lot of the uh how, how should i say the, the sort of older more classic actors have been brought up in the system so they have a you know a, a way about them which is very formal and very interview like and a lot a lot of that involves like oh well i heard you work with so and so oh yes he was marvelous he was 
such a marvelous guy. And then they say, oh, you worked with so-and-so. Oh, she was wonderful. She was so spectacular. <laughs> and it, it just makes me laugh because it's like, you know, it, it's a thing that people in the, in the entertainment industry fall into because they can't necessarily be honest because if they say the wrong thing about the wrong person they're worried that they're not going to ever work again so yeah so uh, i i love podcasts and i li love listening to podcasts and fortunately now with uh, um, the advent of podcasts are, are bigger than a lot of uh, uh, television uh, audiences that um lots of actors and directors are actually being very candid which is always nice. And it dispels the myth because a lot of the time they're like, yeah, they're shooting all this stuff and they just, they're making it up as they're going and it's chaos. And, and uh, yeah, it's, it's always good to hear that. Oh yeah. It's definitely like, Oh yeah. I have a lot of, a couple of them that are like, Oh, I can't, I'm not going to say the name, but this is what happened. I'll tell you the story without using the, I'll give context to who they are. If you know who I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah. It's great. So I'm like, I'll let you do the math of, they have red hair, they do this. Yeah. <laughs> so it's great, it's great. And I know like I've had, especially like we're doing podcasts, I had a guy who's been in radio broadcasting for almost 30 years, and I was like, hey, I know that you've done this for a while, would you like to come on? He's like, uh, I don't know. And he's like, but he's like, you're. I'm going to tell you right now, he's like, you're going the right way. He's like, he's like, even though this is my bread and butter, he's like, traditional radio broadcasting is dead it's yeah. going out. Oh, it's yeah. like digital media like making a podcast like what you're doing you're going the right way he's like you're getting a head up uh foot up more than what i did when i started in broadcasting yeah well, the, the problem is with radio is every everything or not everything but it's scripted because you've got you've got executives you've got shareholders you've got advertisers that you have to think about when you're talking about things, and you can't you can't have a you can't have a conversation. I think um, I, I listened to Mark Maron's podcast quite a lot. Yes. Obviously, he's he's one of the kind of founding podfathers. And um, uh, was it K Rock that he worked for? I think so. Yeah. I think yeah. So, so, yeah. I, I, so I think yeah, I think he ended up leaving because obviously I you know comedians don't do very well at sticking to rules anyway but but um oh also ralph garmin i think worked there um and he he got sacked so i listened to kevin smith's podcast quite a lot so i listened oh, to him yeah. on Ho hollywood babylon and he was working for k, uh, k rock that's right and then he got sacked which he was kind of gutted about and then he did the ralph report but then apparently they literally just cleared the entire decks and pretty much sacked everyone at k-rock which is well that's radio for you oh yeah and not everybody can be howard stern i think that's one reason howard stern went to you know serious so he could do his own thing he was like i know i've been pretty much on the cuff but like i want to do my own i want to be able to do even more than what i was doing and so yeah. he was like i'm gonna do or you gotta pay a subscription if you want the extra goodies yeah, I guess he inadvertently invented the podcast just by not not giving a shit. Yeah, pretty much. He was the first one that did like, I'm going to bring guests on and like, we're going to talk about weird, funny shit. Not like, hey, you're working on this project. It's like, hey, you want to sit in here and watch this chick try to chug down 13 hot dogs? <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't, um, 
obviously because I'm in the UK, but um, another big radio show was Opie and Anthony. Oh yes, yes. Um, which which I never I wasn't really aware of it until like the the last few years because all, all the comedians I listened to always are referencing being on Opie and Anthony, which was uh, sounded like that was quite an anarchic time as well. Oh yeah, and there's one here in south united states it's uh the john boy and billy podcast and they're just two southern guys who do like funny you know dick and fart jokes and come up with uh songs that make fun of political people and it's 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 great fun and they do i think there's one where they do like a uh like a quiz of the week and they have like their real things and then they're like if you pick c which is like the really funny answer they came up with some some pun or something and it's like pick c and win or something it's like Lonesy Lohan, something, something, something. And it's like, and the C answer is she, it's like, she's something. And then I was like, I'm going to take C. That's the answer. And like, okay, you win. Yeah, I love it. I love, I love silliness. Silliness is good. Oh, yes, for sure. Now, uh, I was going to say, let me see. Uh, so one thing I wanted to ask you too, when it comes to like, did you have any like inspiration of people like you? looked up to you about like creature actors like doug jones and i forget the other guy but he does like the big monster dudes from hollywood did you like look up to those guys uh when you were getting into the business well um oh in fact here we go a, a fact about bristol probably the most pertinent fact uh of this subject that uh dave prose who was darth vader came from bristol my hometown oh sweet so, he, and funny enough, he was actually at school with, uh, at the same time my dad was at school. So, um, yeah, so as a kid grow, growing up, I didn't really have any aspirations of doing anything because uh, I wasn't good at school. Um, I was dyslexic, so that meant I was stupid because that wasn't really a thing back then. However, the one thing that I've kind of come to realise is that Everybody that I've heard of or know of or met who's dyslexic are very, very good problem solvers um, because your entire school career is trying to solve a problem that you cannot you can't read and write very well. And the school system is or was or probably still is, is based around reading and writing. So yes. uh, I think I kind of developed a very good problem solving skill. So but. Leaving school, I didn't really have any qualifications. I was 16. I'd just done menial jobs, didn't really have a lot of direction. But knowing that um, Dave Prowse that played Darth Vader came from Bristol, he grew up in an area called Southmead, which is a really kind of impoverished area. It was quite inspiring going, well, this, this guy who sounds like a farmer, Luke, I'm your father. <laughs> you know, he managed to to be in, you know, the biggest movie of all time. So I guess I guess that subconsciously was probably a bit of inspiration that every time I've kind of gone into something that I didn't feel qualified for, it's probably there in the back of my head going, well, if he could do it, then, you know, why not? So, yeah. Um, yeah. So my my kind of interest in movies um i don't know i guess being young it was just escapism escapism as such 
um, just loving watching films, albeit every movie that I watched was in black and white because we never had a colour television until 1991. Um, <laughs> because the, uh, the television licence was cheap. Uh, my dad's a tight ass. So, um, <laughs> so everything I watched uh, w- was in black and white. Um, but yeah, I just love watching movies and kind of my in to the industry was just watching behind the scenes making ofs, um, which they would show on television and then later show on on like VHS, you know, special editions and stuff like that. So I've got I've got no formal training of anything in my life. Um, I've just, I guess, problem solved, figured it out uh, and and done it. And hopefully I'm not too much of an imposter and I kind of am good at what I'm doing. (laughs) Uh, But, yeah, absolutely loved it. Absolutely loved watching various you know, uh, behind the scenes of Star Wars, Indiana Jones, um, all the all those movies. Apocalypse Now was one that I loved watching. Um, uh, uh, there was a documentary called The Heart of Darkness. Um, so, yeah, Apocalypse Now was one of my favourite movies, which just as a cinematic thing is just beautiful. And then you watch the making of, and it was it was chaos. It was just absolute insane oh, yeah didn't they get like delay like, like we're gonna push it a year like which would never be done today they're like we're gonna push production another year and they're like today they're like uh no you get another month <laughs> well it it's it was um obviously francis Ford coppola obviously had a lot of clout and he was a big enough personality to see it through but they they started shooting the with um the captain willard as harvey Keitel, not martin sheen um, oh my gosh! And then it didn't work out. And then they started shooting with Martin Sheen, and but Martin Sheen ended up having a heart attack, so they had to postpone filming. Um, and, and the famous scene at the beginning, where he's kind of drunk in his hotel room, and you know he punches the mirror and stuff like that. That was all just getting him drunk and getting him to do crazy stuff. So, oh, so God. it's kind of it kind of inspiring to me as a sort of I guess an outlier of of um the system of like you know what you you can make stuff with a bit of ingenuity and a bit a bit of chaos and and stuff like that so um yeah so that's quite inspiring but yeah getting back to to other inspirational uh creature stuff um possibly Possibly not necessarily the actors, but I was always a big fan of Rick Baker. And yes, you know, watching watching American Werewolf in London, and it's it's one of those things. It was like I got it immediately. There was some weird symbiosis of comedy and horror that worked really well, um, and and I kind of really kind of bought into that and. It's it's funny, when you're young, you kind of see through bullshit really, really easily. And you kind of see through what stuff is legitimate and what stuff is kind of forced. So, you know, watching American Werewolf immediately as a kid, you're like, oh, my God. You know, you you might ignore that it's not Shakespeare, it's not a brilliant piece of art, but you would... 
you would just pick up on like, oh my God, like the, the, the fur coming out, you know, that was basically pulled backwards and then just played in reverse. And, and oh, the, yeah. kind of, the lack of actually seeing the werewolf itself and, and all these little nuances are things that when you're a kid, you, you kind of, you latch onto and you kind of pick up very quickly. And also uh, the, the magazine Fangoria as well was, was always quite influential. Uh, I don't even know if that's, that's going any, anymore, but that would give a good insight into kind of how they did stuff. Yeah, I know they had those, and uh, I think they still make them. The because uh, I just found some really old ones, the Monsters of Filmland magazines as well. And with the Rick Baker, like, even Roy Woolley, who's a special effects makeup artist for, uh, he's been on Guardians of the Galaxy and uh, Face Off, the TV series. And he was like, "Yeah, same thing." He's like, "I watched American Werewolf in London," and he's like, "I was never good in school." And he was like, "I saw that and was like, I don't know what that is, but whatever they did, I want to do that." Yeah. Whoever's the guy who made that, I want to do that for a living. Yeah, yeah. Um, that was fantastic. And funny enough, go, going on a tangent to Guardians of the Galaxy. So so I started uh, on Doctor Who in season two playing one of the Cybermen. And uh, it was a random thing. The the agent sent 50 guys for an audition. We're all similar height and build. And spent the day with Elsa Burke, who was the, uh, the choreographer, um, marching up and down and doing various different exercises. And we were then told it was to be a Cyberman, Cyberman or Cybermen on Doctor Who. Uh, and we did those four episodes in season two, which was fantastic. Um, the costumes themselves were, were made by a company called Millennium Effects, uh, Neil Gorton's company. And um, Neil Gorton's a, an amazing makeup artist, uh, um, and uh, then there were the crew there as well. And uh, one of the crew who was, who was quite young, um, a guy called John Moore, um, helped us with all the Sideman costumes. He made all the stuff and, you know, he worked in the industry. That would have been back 2003, 2004. And he's basically ended up on Guardians of the Galaxy doing Dave Batista's body makeup. Oh, um, sweet. As well as as well as uh, all sorts of things, so it's um, yeah, it, it's it's good. It's really really nice when you see people that have a passion for something. It's not just like, oh, I'm just going to do this as a job. You do it because that's your thing and you want to do it. And I think as long as as long as that's your attitude and you just persist, and you you know that every day you turn up for work, you are doing what you dreamt of as a child. You're like you're paying me to do what I would do for free, like yeah. Don't, don't, don't tell, tell them, them that, otherwise yeah. Don't get tell you them for free. <laughs> don't tell them I'll do it for free. Yeah, I, I, I think it. I think it really, it really shows, and it the people that rise rise to the top are the people that that love every, you know every moment of actually being there, and and also thinking back, it was like, you know, as a 15 year old person, my career's prospects were at zero. And the careers advisor at school just looks at your grades and they say, hmm, well, maybe you should just work in construction, you know, being a laborer on a construction site. So that that was my goal. That was my goal in life. So anything above that is more than what I expected. So, 
Oh, yeah. It's like with this podcast, I tell people, I'm like, yeah, it's not making, it don't make money necessarily. I was like, and it wouldn't be, I was like, it, for me, it's getting to talk to and have conversations with people told, you know, high school me, hey, you'll get to talk to the voice actor of Velma from Scooby-Doo, like, or some of the, some of your favorite stuff. You'll get to talk to these people that have worked in or been in some of your favorite things. Like, you'd be like, get out of here, you know, but it's it's just cool like you know pursuing these things without it's it's awesome you're doing it for the love of it and i I just love hearing that that it wasn't just like okay i got this gig of being yeah i got to be in the suit it was like no i want to be in the suit i don't want to be the main guy <laughs> yeah well it's um yeah it's funny the older i get the more sort of stoic i am about things and you, you kind of realize is that um you know as a as a westernized society america more so than britain but britain is guilty of it as well is that basically the onus is on you need to earn money you need to have a nice car you need to have a big house that's what makes you successful unfortunately uh, on the flip side it's like why are so many uh people on medication for being unhappy you know there's a correlation, you know, between trying to pursue all of these material things that will try and complete you. Whereas, you know, like you said, you should basically try and make your objective that you spend every part of your day or your working day doing something that you enjoy. So you don't have to go and spend money on a load of stuff you don't need to make you happy for a short period of time. Yeah, it's that old saying like money can't buy happiness or the if it if you love what you're doing it's never a job. It never yeah. it's never it's ne even if you love your day job it's never a job if you love what you're doing. Yeah. Or to quote Tyler Durden, we buy stuff we don't need with money we don't have to impress people we don't like. Yes. <laughs> Which you know what I tell you what Fight Club was really quite um quite influential for me. Um, because the, there was a lot, of me a lot of really, really simple messages that kind of just make you look at yourself and just go, oh, yeah, that's, that makes total sense. Um, and I think it, it was kind of part of the series of films that were out at the end of the 90s, like the, the, obviously the millennium was coming up, that kind of put a lens on how society is and and how you live your life so obviously there was fight club the matrix uh even american beauty to a certain extent yeah which, bas which basically says hang on a minute you're living your life like this but it's unfulfilling you know why why are we unfulf unfulfilled as as a as a society so yeah it's kind of weird those three films all came out in a really really Close, close cluster and that was kind of just when I was getting into the industry and the kind of yeah kind of had a big impact really that, that the filmmakers were actually able to just go kind of almost the anti-establishment thing that you're not allowed to talk about but you can actually put it in a song or you can put it in a movie to say hang on a minute you should actually question where you're being steered at in life oh yeah or it's the thing of everybody's a little insane or fucked up in their own way. And we're all at different lengths of cracking or snapping at any point. Yeah. So no matter what image you show, you never always see what is underneath that mask. 
exactly. Everybody yeah. has a mask and you don't know which one is the real or not. Yeah. <laughs> um so 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 yeah, so yeah, going back series two we did the four four Cybermen episodes. Um rewinding a little bit more. So the choreographer for Doctor Who is, a, is an amazing woman called Elsa Burke. Um, um tiny little woman, really, really tiny petite woman. Uh, but she was absolutely amazing that she could actually show us the movements for these big, heavy creatures. And then years later, I kind of Googled her name and then found out that she, um, you know, she's, an, a, she's a dancer and she's been a creature performer herself. So she was also in uh, Return awesome. of the Jedi. Uh, she was in Jabba's Palace as a man-a-man who was kind of guarding um, Han in, in Carbonite. Uh, she was also in uh, uh, Tarzan Legend, Great Legend of Greystoke, uh, the Christopher Lambert um, Tarzan movie. Oh yeah, yeah. So she actually played uh, the chim- chimpanzee, the the mother of Tarzan. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Um, so, and it's weird that there's, it's it's kind of it, when you meet someone, there's a weird sort of everything seems to come into place that's all linked so she she also worked with someone else who was on uh, who was on tarzan as well uh tim rose um who quite famously is admiral akbar as well yeah so and then and then you kind of keep on like digging and it's like everything's intertwined it's, it's kind of like oh know, yeah it's like the the one guy who does Gollum and lord of the rings like i can't remember there was a movie i think i think it was black panther he plays the the guy that trained that was working with the the bad guy uh, that's right yeah and you're like wait and you look him up you're like wait that guy is the same creature he plays Gollum, and then he's also like a couple of the monkeys and the planet of the apes movies from recent yeah, years and you're like yeah and then you see him, and then you look him up, and you see him in the contraption where he's on all fours, and you're like, "Wait, that's the same guy!" Oh, wow, crazy. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, yeah, it's it's, it's um, it's pretty amazing. Um, but yeah, the the more you kind of dig into it, and it's like what what's quite good as well is is that people people are very close knit in in if if I air quotes say if you're a proper <laughs> artist. And you love you love your art, you know. There, there's there's a weird symbiosis in the entertainment industry of people that are artists and people that are business people, um, and it doesn't they don't gel. So the artists want to make the best possible thing on screen, whereas the business people look at sums. They look at well, this costs A, and uh how much are we going to make back on it well we're spending too much so we're going to get rid of all the things that will make it good which in fact will actually make it less money um <laughs> so there is a is a constant battle but but the the artistic type people are very uh um protective over you know their art and and creating what is the best thing that could be on screen Yes. Now, when it comes to the Cybermen suits, like how for you, like and the actor, is it because I've always wondered this trying to like recreate it as cosplay. uh, How heavy are the suits? Are they like plastic? Are they like 
uh, polyfoam or? Well, the 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 ones from Series Two were made from fiberglass, um, so they were quite heavy. Um, but the fiberglass was also coated in an aluminium powder, so it wasn't paint. It physically was aluminium. Oh, sweet! It was then polished, but the entire suits weighed, and Americans don't do stone, do they? So it, <laughs> it was about four stone, which is sixty pounds. Ooh. something like that and the reason why we found that out was one of my friends ken he we were all wondering how heavy it was and then the next day he turned up with a set of bathroom scales <laughs> and weighed <laughs> himself and then uh, and then did the calculations and worked out how it was so they were exceptionally heavy and i've got to say they were um they were pretty difficult to wear all day you were constantly being crushed um <clears throat> The weight did help because they do look very heavy. Um, however, the the next series of Cybermen that were the Nightmare and Silver Cybermen, which I didn't play because I'm too broad. They want very, very skinny people. Those were then made out of uh, um, a, a rubber type material. I think it's called PT Flex. Or was that the paint? I can't quite remember. But that, based, that technology was based off Iron Man's costume in oh. the first Iron Man. So it's, it's basically a, a, a rubber that can then be painted to look like metal. So there's a, a big evolution of um, material or use of materials in a very short period of time. The latest Cybermen that we played in the last series, uh, those were designed by Ray Holman, the costume designer, and made, uh, manufactured by uh, uh, Rob Alsop. They were basically uh, like a spray plastic, um, like they would make a mold and spray a plastic into the mold and oh, awesome. or something. So they were they were almost like um, I don't know. Say say if you if you buy fake armor, medieval armor that's made out of plastic, there's almost it was almost like that. Oh, so, cool. So the, the, yeah, there's there's big leaps and bounds in the technology of the materials and, and listening to um, uh, Rick Baker recently because his book came out and he was doing a lot of podcasts. Oh, I know. Stuff. I want that book so bad. Yeah, I know. I, I've seen, I went to Millennium Effects and they got the book and I was like, I was like, damn, I'm not even going to open that book because as soon as I open it, I'm going to have to spend a lot of money on buying it. <laughs> but but like listening to Rick, it's there isn't any real rules on how to do stuff it's the you know what's basically been done by someone previous trying to figure out how to make something look a certain way so it's uh, oh yeah it's, i think him and roy both said like they would get the monster magazines and look at like dick smith and the guys who did it in the 30s and look in the magazines and magnifying glass and like okay look on their shelves in the back like okay i see that they have this this uh, I can see if they have that at the hardware store, kind of figuring out how they did it and take it their own technique. Yeah. Um, so, uh, well, I went off on a tangent there. Um, so, yeah, <laughs> oh, so the, the, te the technology changed a lot. But a, re a really nice and interesting thing was the uh, the Maya Warriors that we played in the Girl Who Died episode with Maisie Williams. Those costumes were made out of uh, EVA foam, which cosplayers use. Oh, yeah. Building stuff. 
So Kate Walsh from Millennium Effects, basically, they, they got the task of making this huge costume. And previous, they would make it out of fiberglass or vacuum plastic. But she was like, well, you know, cosplayers use EVA or plastizo foam to make their costumes. Why don't we do the same? So they they basically went, oh, well, cosplayers have figured a way out of... And looks really good. <laughs> yeah, make a way of doing things. They're like, well, we need to make this, but we can't, we haven't got the technology. Oh, let's just use foam. So it's nice that the industry has now kind of copied back off of what the fans were doing to actually try and create things. That's awesome. They're like, okay, so you see how these cosplayers made the awesome replicas of what we did with half the budget. <laughs> yeah. And and a quarter of the weight, thank God. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you always wondered that because I know a lot, a lot, a lot of the times with uh, like stormtrooper outfits, they're the you know that pressed, pretty much just sealed on top of plastic, and yeah, then you like, like back, back have to strap plastic. them together. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, the, I suppose the good thing about vac form, it doesn't weigh a lot, um, and it is quite interesting as well because. Um, after we did the Sidemen in Series 2, every single costume I've worn since has been easier. So it's almost like that. It's almost like that thing in life that you've got to do the, the hardest, the most toughest thing in life when you're younger. So everything else in life after that is easy. Yes. Um, so it's kind of almost like that with the Cyberman costume. And uh, it, it does make me laugh when I, when I see people on set complaining about a costume. Um, albeit it, it might even just be a human costume and i, I kind of sometimes i have to bite my lip and go and basically go well you put one of those side men costumes on for 12 hours a day and then and then tell me <laughs> but but I, I i did post something on my instagram which uh which i thought was quite funny so you know remember the film returns was yes so tiktok uh was played by an actor and terrible i can't remember the actor's name now but but the guy i think he was an ex-gymnast and if uh, if anybody googles uh tiktok return to oz they'll probably see a photograph of how he actually had to fit inside the costume so the design for the costume the legs were very wide apart but tiktok itself was very short it was only three or four foot high so the actor himself he basically had to double his entire body over and then they would actually stick the top of TikTok on and he would have to do his scene literally like this with his head between his legs. Oh like my that. gosh. So so yeah so I, I, I kind of went I went on a, a bit of a I'm gonna poke a stick at people uh moment on uh, Instagram and I was saying the next time you're on set complaining about your costume just uh, remember just remember the actor that had to play tiktok so um it's uh yeah it's a, it's a good leveler shouldn't complain oh yeah i think it's like the same thing with uh lon cheney when he did the hunchback how he literally strapped his body into this position of like i think they said like after he did that movie he had back problems for the rest of his life because of the mechanism that he created to give that hunchback look yeah suffering for your art <laughs> yes and we're all like oof man if you had some more technology you would have been a better off <laughs> but at the time i guess that's all you had was 
you know, the 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 uh, spirit gum and all that crap to just do what you had to do back in that time period. So he yeah. just you know, do what he had to do to get the character out. Now, yeah. probably for you, the easiest one I'm going to guess that you were like, who it's going to be an easy costume today is the the I forget the the creature's name, but the Christmas episode with the spiky teeth. Um, what the 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 Whisper Man? Yeah, it kind of looked like the kind of like Slender Man with sharp teeth. Ah, uh, right. Well, no, I, I tell you what, that was probably possibly one of the most difficult ones. Oh, <laughs> um, I have got a video on my YouTube channel of um, the three-hour prosthetic makeup that that took to to create. Um, so basically, they they. There's a there's a foam latex face piece that went across our brows around here and then around our lips. That was glued to us. Uh, we then had a bald cap and our entire head was painted. And they then shaded in all of the shadow areas and then pulled a, a stocking, a female stocking, almost like this, <laughs> as I could demonstrate, over our head. Uh, they would then cut the stocking and glue the stocking to our lips so our mouths could open um and basically we couldn't see uh oh day. my god so so even though you, you kind of look at it you go oh that's comfortable but the the reason for going through that entire process is because because our mouths had to open um they had to have this appearance of skin over our over our heads um so and the other thing is we couldn't shut our lips all day because they would stick together. Um, oh, God. And probably the most annoying thing was because if you, if you are a bank robber and you pull a thick pair of stockings over your head, it, and I've got a big nose, it squishes your nose. Now, you imagine holding your nose like that for 12 hours. Oh, God. It's going to be slightly annoying. So, uh, so, yeah, that was pretty challenging. And if you... Um, yeah, if somebody Google's Whisperman time lapse, uh, it'll probably come across my uh, YouTube uh, video, uh, and that was actually done at the Doctor Who Proms in 2013 in the Albert Hall. Oh, awesome! Now, have you had any problems with any of the costumes that you've been in? Because I know how like Jim Carrey, when it came to like makeup in uh, the the Grinch movie, like he, they actually had to bring like a torture person in because he was so I guess not claustrophobic, but the the full makeup process like was driving him insane that they had to bring somebody in to like coats him to be okay in the makeup. Have you had anything sort of close to that or being in a suit or something like that? Um no. The, um Elsa has did do a lot of breathing exercises with us as well. <clears throat> so one of the one of the, the the kind of problems that you get is that uh, and it's totally counterintuitive. It's like if you're in a mask or something that's very claustrophobic, you start panicking and you start thinking that you need more oxygen. So you start breathing more. You start hyperventilating, which then produces more carbon dioxide. So, so it's a counterintuitive thing. If, if anyone has ever done scuba diving, it's exactly the same process. As soon as you're underwater, you feel claustrophobic and you're... <laughs> You're, you're hyperventilating. So a lot of the time is, is breathing, just breathing exercises, just, you know, breathing in for six, breathing out for six, or breathing in for three, breathing out for six. 
Um, it's kind of a lot of meditation going on. It's kind of trying to be fairly zen on on set as such. Um, what I did find with the Whisper Man was that it took three hours. We had to start at four o'clock in the morning. And the worst part about it is, is sat in a chair, look, staring at a mirror, doing nothing for three hours. It, it, it drove me up the wall. Um, you know, maybe, maybe I've got what they call ADHD. I call it being, having an interesting personality. But, <laughs> and, and, and I want to do a lot of things with my life. But literally, that would drive me off the, up the wall. Literally sat in a chair, just staring at a mirror for three hours. So normally, after about an hour and a half, um, I would I would just I would just have to get up and just move around and just see something different. Hello, friends. I'm Taya, and I'm Sammy, and we're the hosts of the Offbeat Worm Podcast. Come check us out. We talk about so many things: spooky things, silly things, and everything in between. Find our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. And we'll catch you on the offbeat. See you soon. I don't, I'm the same way. I'm like, oh, I gotta, gotta be constant move. I'm like, let me. <laughs> well, That's yeah, what yeah, for yeah. me, I enjoy more because I do a lot of makeup and stuff or cosplays and different people. I guess it's easier for me. Like, like I'd like doing it, like getting it done because it's cool afterwards. But like for me, it's a lot. I like more doing it on people because I'm actually doing something like i just did for halloween i did a my interpretation of wolfman uh and just sitting at my taking forever to put the layers of goo and then putting the hair and every little detail i'm like okay i gotta take 20 minutes gotta look away from my face for a minute give me something to drink chill out watch something then go back and do it again finish it up because i think uh, which kind of helped out. I was like, okay, I got to let the latex sit for 20 minutes. Then I can put the hair on top again. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it, it's one of those things that it's, um, it, 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 oh, what's, the, what's the term? Ever, 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 di- ever diminishing circles of, re- uh, ever circles of return or something like that. Sounds um, close enough. <laughs> yeah. That basically, it's like if I spend more and more time on this, I'll do it quicker. But it's not because because when you're concentrating, focusing on something, your your brain needs a reset because you can't look at anything objectively. So so I I try. I've heard someone who's very clever. Uh, that's what I try and do. Listen to clever people in podcasts because I'm an idiot. But basically, <laughs> I try I try and apply that to everything that. Five minutes of, of every hour that I'm doing something, I will literally go and stare at the sky or just take myself away. And it gives your brain time to reset and you get that time to kind of evaluate what you're doing and then carry on. And I've been guilty of it for years that on certain th- projects that I'd work on, I would work 14, 18 hours a day because I think I'm getting more done. But you kind of just you're just undoing your work. And I, I do a lot of uh, visual effects stuff on the computer as well. And I can remember be, doing After Effects stuff for like 18 hours a day. And you get to a point and it's almost like some weird hypnosis that you're, it's almost like staring into the matrix that you're, you're not actually seeing what you're doing and you're, you're, you're adjusting everything and there's some weird path that you're taking and you're, 
you're not being objective anymore. So, so yeah, I'm a bit, I'm a big fan of literally doing something, walking away, coming back. I got a friend of mine who's, who's a very accomplished uh, graffiti artist. His name, his name's Jody. He comes from Bristol, funny enough, and he, he'll paint amazing. Um, or uh, I don't want to use photorealistic because he hates that word, but he will paint a canvas that that looks almost like a photograph. But every time I see him paint, he's he's painting something and is an enormous canvas or or a thirty foot wide wall, and he's this far away from it. And you can't you can't see if you're doing a painting, you can't see what you're doing this close. Yeah. So literally, he would paint. And then when he goes to look at it, he would turn his back, he would walk away from it and then turn his back. And I think he, he probably referenced it from some some genius artist that that's a really good method of actually you're, you're literally doing a blank, turning, coming back and seeing it objectively. So a bit of advice to anyone that, the, the, you know, if you if you think, right, I need to put more hours and work harder into it, it's sometimes you start walking backwards yes cool cool now when it comes to like i know you said with like the cyberman suits how does it differ from the cyberman to being in like the dalek shells because i know it's sort of i've seen it where people have made them is it i don't know how they have it on the production it's basically like a a motorized wheelchair with the shell on top how is it the different from that yeah, well, a lot of the fan ones, and the fans have very rightly done it, has made um, Daleks around a motorized wheelchair, which is brilliant. Unfortunately, on the show, they're not. They're, they're just three wheels and us inside Fred Flintstoning it, basically. <laughs> um, and and I, always have, I always have to say this because people think they always know better. They go, well, why didn't they make them electric? And I was like, right. You shoot the TV program, a minute's worth on set, I don't know, pull a, fi a figure, £1,000 a minute. That's how much it's costing. If you've got 10 motorised Daleks, any of those 10 motorised Daleks, because they're motorised, there's a 1,000 components in them. If one component goes wrong, they don't work. If they don't work for a minute, that's costing £1,000. So having a human in there pushing along with your feet, we very rarely will malfunction. So <laughs> there's an equation. Yeah, we would love electric wheelchairs at the end of the day. Um, however, uh, yeah, it was good. It's a good. It's a good fitness workout, especially if you have to go up a hill. Oh, oh god, <laughs> it, it, it's pretty pretty hardcore. But yeah, literally, we're we're just inside the Daleks. You, you know, we got the, the the exterminator and the sucker, and the the, the heads on a stick like that so uh nothing much has changed the hero ones are remotely operated because getting the eye stalk to and go into the exact place is sometimes critical yes. um but it was yeah it was it was pretty amazing fun when we got asked to be the daleks which was victory of the daleks so um up to then the daleks were played by barnaby edwards uh nick Pegg, dan barrett and someone else but because there are lots of Daleks in Victory of the Daleks, they got, um, it was me, Jeremy, Joe, Matt and Ben that had all played monsters. And we, we, had, a, we had a brilliant Dalek 101 training day with Barnaby <laughs> and Nick. 
which was which was fantastic. I think it was on Doctor Who Confidential. It might still be on the it might be on YouTube or something. So, uh, um, so yeah, they they trained us to be the Daleks, and the very first opening scene was uh, where, and I can never pronounce this word, the progenitor. It was like a little Dalek egg that then spawned the new Daleks. Oh yes, yes, yes. A load of smoke came up, and then the Daleks enter and we all kind of fan out really nicely it looks brilliant um however like most things we didn't really have any time to rehearse um <laughs> also as well the entrance that the daleks should come through was only an inch wider either side than the daleks so because the set is being built and the daleks are being built at the same time someone sort of roughly has to make a decision on how wide to make the doors. So the, da- the literally the doors are an inch wider than the Daleks. So our first, our first go was action. We also had to push up a ramp into the room as well. So it's pushing up a ramp, smoke, can't see anything. The doors an inch wider than the Dalek. So on the very first take, the first Dalek, I can't remember if it was Barnaby or Nick, hits the door and then (laughs) and a load of Daleks just bust up behind and and then we basically made a suggestion I said well how about getting some white gaffer tape putting a white gaffer tape bang in the middle of the floor so we can actually look at our feet we had a little torch on our heads look at our feet and then we can get in the middle of that white line and (laughs) make our way into the room so uh yeah Again, love again. to see that blooper reel. <laughs> yeah, oh, uh, yeah. There, there's plenty of stuff. I'm, I'm sure that's uh, that will be quite hilarious to watch. Now, did you get to do the voice, or is it all Nick Briggs? Now it's all, all Nick Briggs. So, the first time I met Nick was when we were doing the Cyberman episode. Um, I immediately warmed to Nick within about five seconds of meeting him because. Um, He's one of those. How can I put it? He doesn't give a shit, you know. <laughs> you know, he's not. He's not kind of. Oh, the industry. He's he's very relaxed. Um, you know his his story and his into the industry as well is quite fascinating. You know, as as basically just being a Doctor Who fan and record recording his own Doctor Who plays in his bedroom on a tape recorder and then you know miraculously works for big finish writing and producing and 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 working on the show so yeah immediately i warmed to him uh you know he's a he's a joker through and through so what happened was doing the cybermen voices he was on set reading the dialogue live and he had his mooga fuga with him and when he delivered his lines, there was a speaker on set. So obviously, having it pre-recorded is useless. Ask any actor, do you want to act against a pre-recorded soundtrack? They would, they would be horrified by it. So, um, so he would read the Cybermen lines. But we had blue lights in our mouths, and the blue lights had to go in time with Nick's dialogue. So we had to roughly learn what the script was, also wearing the helmets, you can't hear anything. You can't hear the actors' lines because obviously, oh God. because television and film acting, you're speaking like this. Um, we could hear Nick's lines, but not the actors' lines. 
So it was literally a case of as soon as Nick starts talking, we, we know that we have to activate the lights in our mouths. The lights are activated with a switch, a little sprung switch under our chin. So every time Nick delivered his lines, we were going <laughs> on the inside. And this switch was then flashing the lights in the mouths. Um, you know, a brilliant way of working it out. The only problem was because there were LED lights in the mouths, we couldn't breathe through the mouths because there was no hole. Oh, so God. the only way to get air was to actually try and draw air through the eyes. Um, and after wearing one of those very tight fitting masks for 30 minutes, you're, you're really conserving the amount of oxygen you're drawing in and also uh, breathing out. So, so yeah, so that was, that was the voice of the Cybermen. Then Nick basically did the same thing with the Daleks. But what was better with the Daleks was there was a radio transmitter connected to his microphone and the receiver for the transmitter were in the heads of all the Daleks. So when he talks, it will open up the circuit and then the circuit at the other end will basically make the lights flash on the dome. Oh, that's but, that's so much better. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and basically also uses standard incandescent light bulbs which have this nice phase this glow um and i've seen a lot of people using led lights and as a purist it ooh, i'm like oh it doesn't work <laughs> because it's like <laughs> so so yeah so anyone out there use incandescent lights and obviously fans as well like being screen accurate um, yeah. And these bulbs aren't available anywhere except in the UK. So I've I've had I've, I think I took some to someone in Australia when when I went to Australia once. They're like, oh, can you can you get these light bulbs because they're the the proper twelve volt <laughs> light bulbs or brake light bulbs or something. Um, so yeah, so that was a lot easier doing it with the Daleks. The the we didn't have to worry about. Nick's voice but what was what was really amazing as well is Nick had this little board full of switches and he would have uh you know we'd have white Dalek blue Dalek yellow orange Ironside and then he would literally click the switch and then do do the voice for that Dalek and then switch the flick the switch and do it for another and when you listen to it every every Dalek has its own personality um, you know, so obviously the Supreme Dalek was very deep like this. And there's always obviously one Dalek that's very uptight. Um, <laughs> but interestingly enough, we, we did a show called Doctor Who Live, which is a big arena, a, a big arena touring show. Um, and Nick was on there and he was doing the voice of the Daleks. He also played Winston Churchill and, and one of the winders as well. And he was doing the voices for the Daleks. And I, and I said to him, I said, um, I said, oh, one of those Daleks sounds like Zippy from a program called Rainbow. And Rainbow was a, a kid's TV show. And Zippy was this weird puppet that was almost like, I don't even, he almost looked like his head was the same shape as Stewie Griffin, but he had a big mouth. And he had a zip across his mouth and he was very inappropriate. And when he said inappropriate stuff, the other puppets would zip his mouth shut. Hence, he was called <laughs> Zippy. And, um, and I was like, 
yeah. I said, what are those Dalek sounds like Zippy? And he was like, oh, yeah, because it was Roy Skelton that did the voice of Zippy, also did the voice of the Daleks. Oh, that is like, awesome. And I was like, oh, all right, yeah, I'm, I'm not enough of a Doctor Who nerd to have kind of made <laughs> that connection. But, it, yeah, it was, it, but every time it makes me laugh um, when, you know, if, if somebody Googles Rainbow uh, British TV series and they see Zippy it, and you'll hear it straight away, you're like, ah, I, I remember that <laughs> uh, oh, no, kind of voice. From, uh, from the classic Doctor Who series. So, yeah, is it, is it, you, put, you start pulling up one thread and it, it, everything starts sort of unraveling. Yes. Now, I know, because from a lot of British people, that they're not even fans of the show. They just kind of, because I know it's, for Doctor Who, it's basically a staple over there in the UK. Did you watch the show growing up, like the classic series or any of the series growing up? Or was it kind of yeah. just like it was there? Yeah, so I I watched um, my first experience was Tom Baker's episodes. Um, so I've, I've kind of got quite vivid memories, albeit they're all in black and white because we need we didn't have a color <laughs> television. Maybe it added to the scare factor. If I'm now revisiting some of Tom Baker's episodes, I start looking at it and going like, "Oh, that set and that special effects doesn't look great now," but. But yeah, but back then it 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 really uh, yeah really had a big impact on me, and also as also as well, if you actually watch it now, you kind of like I don't think they would actually let a lot of this be made. There was there was a very uh, there's a brilliant thing that they used to use back then, and I think it was more of a kind of necessity thing when they were shooting in a studio where they would have. Generally, in the studio, they would shoot on video and on location, they'd still shoot on film because the cameras were a lot smaller. But it is the classic uh, ending part of Doctor Who where somebody screams and then they do a crash zoom up on the face. And then you'd have their... And if you actually watch that now, it's like, you know what? That's a really quite effective, scary trope of, of really kind of bringing bringing home something so you know i i I hope that they bring that back on uh, lots of tv series but yeah remembering tom baker stuff was was fascinating and uh tom as a doctor was amazing because he was this this big like confident guy who who could just kind of figure everything out so it was yeah it was pretty fascinating i then watched um i've watched peter's episodes as well but then, then I was getting to the. I'm going to show my age now. Then I was getting to the age where I was about around about fifteen, and kind. Of, I don't know whether it is the same now, but kind of when you get around about fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, all of a sudden you've got this compulsion to to try and grow up really quick and be be an adult and be, you know, sense not sensible as such. You want to leave childish things behind so and i think a lot of people get caught up with this that you you have a love for something as a child then all of a sudden you you kind of get to this stage and you're like, oh i gotta be sensible and i've got to figure my career out and and work and fit in um so i kind of stopped i kind of left sci-fi and fandom and all the things that i loved as a kid and then just did bullshit for years <laughs> 
and then and then and then kind of just drifted back into it and then met likewise people that were working in the industry and weirdly enough all the all the most creative successful writers and those people they're all nerds they they literally were all nerds as kids and loved this nerdiness and who who's the best people to write about you know nerdy stuff is nerds so yes <laughs> so all of a sudden you you kind of go you know you get inspired like going oh well nick briggs ended up you know doing audio dramas for sci-fi and being on doctor who basically because he was a nerdy kid who liked doctor who recorded his own songs and then he basically uh, uh recorded his own uh, uh doctor who stories then went to conventions and stuff like that. And at the time, you know, Stephen Moffat and Russell T. Davis and Chris Chibnall were all the the nerdy Doctor Who kids. Yes. At these, at these conventions during the Dark Ages. And they're all in the, everyone's in the same boat. And then they become writers and they're like, well, who's the best person for this job? Well, it's got to be Nick Briggs because he's the best person at doing it. So um yeah so so never 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 try and fit in and and leave your love for 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 nerdy stuff behind and ironically enough like the the biggest selling ip in television and movies is now all um comic book and nerd stuff so oh i know it's it's one of those like that's somebody was like Wow, I used to, for the things that are now everybody likes. I used to get beat up for in high school. <laughs> exactly, I know it's, it's, it's bonkers, really. But like I, I saw a girl, she posted. She was like, "If you didn't like me in my anime stage when I wasn't hot, you don't get me when I'm in my hot-looking anime twenties now." <laughs> <clears throat> but what is actually quite fascinating, and especially looking at Marvel stuff, is that the 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 storytelling um the the marvel comics use is 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 classic storytelling is all classic um fables uh, uh, and and shakespearean and and greek based stuff um over you know regret and redemption and revenge and everything that everybody can identify with um so you know it, it might at the time it you know it might have been looked down upon by the literary scholars as such but you know you you watch this big you know um uh you know eye candy on screen but the, there is that story there's there's always the human story underneath you know and and it is also nice as well that that, that all of the all of the villains weren't really born evil it was yeah. it was almost through their circumstances so it's is really nice that that's actually put out on screen whereas action movies prior to to fandom comic book movies never really dug that deep it was like oh he's a baddie he's a goodie yeah um, so it is, it is nice you know even even like obviously darth vader in star wars it's Star Wars came out and is like, oh, he, he's evil. And then, you know, by by the end of Jedi, you're like, oh, well, he was manipulated by the Emperor, just like he's trying to do to Luke and 
there's reasons yeah. for reasons for someone's journey that would will you know literally make them turn to the dark side yeah it makes uh, you mourn for his death instead of oh the bad guy's dead it's like oh no you're dead and it makes you mourn for when he dies in the end yeah and and you know and also you know once once you see star wars as a kid as a kid you you get it you get it immediately you don't know why you get it and then obviously like later on you know like listening to to george lucas talking out you know obviously he chucks in lots of eastern philosophy in there you know that's pretty much everything that yoda says and and what the jedi is kind of based around uh you yeah. know almost like a karmic a, a karmic sort of philosophy and it, it all makes sense but yeah you know, as a kid you didn't you didn't really maybe pick up on all these nuances but you kind of understood you understood those stories and and how how characters kind of react as well so um i don't know where i was going with that i just went down some, <laughs> some uh, rabbit oh, hole I don't, like i said i love the stories man it's it's great so I, I i don't mind and like i said the yeah. listeners don't mind they love the stories now yeah. one thing too like how was that i wanted to ask you that too like how was that as like a young fan like getting to even though it was like a different design how was it like getting to be these characters, these creatures that you grew up watching, like this legend, this this legendary legacy character. How was that for you, getting to embody that? Well, when we went for the the uh, initial um, audition, um, we were we were basically told, "Oh, this is to be the Cybermen on Doctor Who." And by the way, the you signed a NDA, so you can't talk about it. <laughs> Literally, it was like I went home. I had this. I just had this feeling. It was. It was like I knew I was going to win the lottery, and it was. It was just. I was like, I got. I got to get this. I got to get this. This will. Um, this will fill the hole, the void in my life, <laughs> which which uh, I think all well all performers have 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 a void that they try and fill with performing anyway. Um, we then went to Millennium FX to try the costume on, and I, I was super nervous because I'm like I'm just like this nobody, and I'm about to possibly do something that that I could never have dreamed of. Um, and then you know, if the costume fitted, then then we got the job, and I got it. And literally, the first day on set, it was just like the most amazing experience ever. Um, however, the thing is that what a lot of people realise and, and experience is the more you work in the industry, the less glamorous it actually is as a job. After you see um, the sausage made, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it's it's you know. There's a phrase called hurry up and wait. So, you know, I, I would have to be there for the Whistman at four o'clock in the morning. I might not get used until four o'clock in the afternoon. Um, but every every time that I'm thinking I'm having a bad bad day, I got to think, what's the what's the crappiest jobs that I did on my in my life? I did work on a building site as a labourer for twelve hours a day in, in winter where I had to wear like three pairs of jeans and four coats and walk up and down, just lugging stuff around uh, all day. Um, and I, I basically think, what is what I'm doing now worse than that? And, and basically the experience that I'm getting 
and the stories that I can tell. So, you know, you have your little moment. You've got to keep it to yourself. You just got to play it over in your head and then and then it goes away. It's kind of kind of a kind of a bit of transcendental meditation, basically, which which is which is a lot of actors do. And it might sound a little bit woo woo, but it actually does work because everybody has negative thoughts, but nobody really thinks to have positive thoughts because it's easier to, to again go to the dark side. And it's much easier to, to have a negative reaction than a positive reaction. So, so just have a little word with yourself for a few minutes in your head and say how much of a wonderful day you're having, and then it will be a wonderful day. Yeah, I've always wondered that, because I know, like, especially like when the people who get, like, David Tennant and Peter Capaldi, who were fans, and, like, I get to be this character that I've looked up to since I was five years old. Like, I'm the doctor, and, like hearing their stories of like their first day on set of like I get to be this character it's it's for real it's not just a, a dream anymore yeah it's um it is fascinating because my other line of business is I'm a photographer and uh, and a filmmaker and a and a cameraman so I, I started doing stuff on big dramas because at the time I was shooting lots of stop-motion animation and I'm like you know what I just want to see what a bigger set looks like and I still do. I still do it now. I, I would literally. I'll be on set and I'll be looking at everybody's job and I'll be seeing how they do their job and I'll just be going, "Oh, that's a good idea. Uh, that's a good idea. I'm going to use that." So I'm kind of just like a sponge for for trying to improve myself. Um, but yeah, it was it was fascinating to to start with. But the again co going back to kind of what I said that 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 basically the 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 overall production is more important than anybody even if you're the title character yeah. so you know going back to that an analogy is it if it's costing a thousand pounds a minute the most important thing is to get everything done quick um and no mistakes and it doesn't matter who you are you, you know we're gonna crack the whip we've got to get it done now so um it's is really interesting to see and, and listening, especially to actors in the, in a podcast. Um, you cannot have an ego in the industry um, because the problem is, is you can you can is very short term. You can get where you want to go very quickly if you act like an asshole, um, and if you if you're a, a narcissistic sociopath, which which you know the industry is drawn towards, you can get there quite easily by stepping over a lot of people however the thing is you're not more important than the entire industry and eventually people aren't going to want to work with you so um yeah so it is interesting when you see people that like the hot thing you know like oh they're in everything and then they're not and it, it could be a couple of reasons it could be that they all of a sudden you know when they got to this position that they're the most important person on set that the the ego just gets out of control um and is it's very it, you have to keep reminding yourself that you're not important you know it's uh um you you know is uh, the boss what's the the phrase the little blue dot you know looking back at earth from the sun yes um, god who said that was it carl sagan or someone like that but anyway so yeah, 
the basically it's having to stay humble is is a really really good thing and advice to anyone be nice even if even if you're not being treated well you know that person might not have bad intentions they might have had a bad day they may have been, they may have been up making a prosthetic makeup for 24 hours without any sleep you know to get it done they might be a bit short with you but um, most important thing is to uh, just to be nice and to make everybody's life or job easier, um, which means, and especially for performers and actors, is rehearse the shit out of whatever you're going to do so you don't have to have a second take. Oh, yeah. There's a quote by uh, it's not really a quote, but he's said it before. Uh, the voice actor, Rob Paulson, uh, he's. He's been in a bunch of. If you look him up, you'll know who exactly he is. But he said it because I asked him like about like have you worked with assholes, and he was like, "I'm going to take this right now." In this industry, there's not a lot of assholes, and if you are an asshole, you better be damn good at your job. If not, you're gone. He's like, because we know a lot more people who aren't assholes who are ten times better than you. So yeah. you better be. So you better be damn good at your job if you're going to be an asshole. Yeah, I, I I think I listened to a podcast with Tom Hanks. I think it was on um. It was on Nerdist, I think, or, or uh, Chris Hardwick's podcast. And uh, <clears throat> Tom, Tom was telling stories of, of being on set and, and getting rushed. Like, oh, we've got five minutes to get this shot right. You, you know, oh, you're really upset. Now go. And he's like, I'm not a light switch. You know, it's like, don't just switch on like an actor or, or them getting a shot and everybody rushing off to do the next shot. And he's like, was was that any good? I I didn't think it was good, you know. But you know, you hear Tom Hanks saying that he experiences that. So don't be surprised if you will experience that and far worse. <laughs> yeah, because I think he's like one of the number one actors under like Tom Cruise or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, again, he you know he's good at his job. He's he's nice. Um, then and there's always the other the 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 trickle down effect. So, if your number one on the call sheet is a nice person, the number one on the call sheet, i.e., for example, the person playing Doctor Who, if they're a nice person, well, they've got the hardest job because they're practically in every single shot, and they're the title character of this program. And if it comes across badly due to any error in writing or direction, it's the onus is on the actor, is not on the direction, is not on the writing. The immediate thing you see is an actor doing it wrong. So they got, they got the toughest job. Now, if they're nice and polite, everyone else underneath them, that their job's not as difficult, has to take example from number one. So there's a trickle-down effect, which is great. However, if number one on the call sheet is a fucking dick, it can spread like wildfire that, you know, if you're around good people, you feel good. If you're around bad people, it's, it's infectious. So, um, yeah, I've heard, I, I can't name names, but I've heard horror stories <laughs> from other productions that obviously I haven't worked on of, uh, of big shot directors or big shot actors just making everything terrible. 
Now, how was that for you getting to act with like a like David getting? Do, were you any of the? So were you any like were you made like the background ones or were you ever any like the main like the one Cyberman guys like in front rows or? So the, our um, cyber leader or monster leader, as we we called him, was uh, a guy called Paul Casey, um, and I, I would say that he's he's qualified. He's a proper performer, whereas we kind of stumbled into it. So you know, he, he he's a, a dancer and a you know an actor and you know has done stage. So he he basically had all of the the kind of main featured lead difficult roles as such. Um, but occasionally, you know, we got thrown up to to do um, different things. There was one thing that that I did, which again, because I was very new and very nervous and green to everything, I I kind of panicked before I did it. There's a shot in uh, so Rise of the, I think it's Age of Steel, where um, you've got rose and her dad and they were in the cyber conversion plant oh yes basically there's two cybermen holding them and they're they're pushing them forwards uh and the camera's tracking back with them and they're having a conversation now that was shot uh a a brewery a place where they make beer so those big silos that you see they they brew beer in there you know it looks cool lots of chrome pipes so it it could be yeah. a Cyberman conversion plant. Um, so that scene, it was it was basically, again, they're having a conversation. So they're literally speaking about this loud, even though there's this enormous noise going on outside. Um, so our instructions that get filtered down, so you have the director who's in charge of everything, the first director, which is the, usually the one that's vocal and speaks to all the departments, and then the third assistant director, who will then literally relay what we're doing. But the problem is, is you've got all of these layers and stuff gets lost. So they were like, right, basically, uh, you're marching them down. You get to the end. When she says this line, you, you push them forward and go around there. OK, right. We're, we're not going to rehearse. We're going to shoot. And I'm like, I can't hear in this helmet at the best of times, let alone walking somebody down listening to a line turning them i don't know what i'm going to hear i can't i don't know if i'm going to fit through this gap um so you know and i don't want to mess up the shot you know the thousand pound a minute dilemma (laughs) Uh, the thousand pound a limit uh thousand pound a minute paradox or whatever i I, I might coin that um (laughs) so and obviously i don't want to speak up because I'm just, this is my first thing in the industry. And if they, if I try and make trouble, they might not, you know. All of those things are going through your mind within like 15 seconds. Now, um, obviously, I guess, obviously, Billy Piper is, is a, a professional actress. She understands things and possibly just even heard the conversation and looked at the expression on my face afterwards. So I was literally in a, in a self-contained panic. Billy came up to me and she said, oh, um, yeah, you might have difficulty hearing what I'm saying. So on the line where you're supposed to turn, I'll 
I will throw myself forward so you know that you have to turn me. Um, and like li literally, that was like the the best thing that anybody. Oh, I don't want to. I'll have I'll have a, annoyed girlfriends at me. Probably one of the best things that anyone's ever actually done to me because literally I'm thrown into this situation where I've been given direction without direction. And if I would have messed up the shot, I would have been the one at fault. And Billy obviously was uh, new, basically, you know, as yeah. a professional performer. I'm sure she's come across this in the past where you get put on the spot and it's going to go wrong. And the, the focus is going to be on you, even though it was someone else who gave you a bad thing to do. So, so yeah, so th literally that was just, that was such an amazing experience. I was so new in the industry and literally this person who, you know, I'm a nobody, she's a somebody. And yeah. she took, she took that time to literally understand like the little man, me, um, the problem that I was having and that really stuck with me so um, so I've, I've as much as possible tried to try to be aware of that and if I now on set obviously I'm just a bit more confident I, I can understand that probably everyone doesn't doesn't quite know how the shot is going to go so if I can actually make a suggestion to make everyone's life easier um then then it would be better and then don't wait for someone to say oh you can rehearse now literally just do it if there's a moment that you you aren't being used you just got to rehearse it work out your steps see where you're going um there was an instance where there was a quite a complicated thing when we did the cybermen for the last time which potentially could go wrong it was it was basically six of us marching turning a corner stopping all at the same time all raising our arms up at the same time a line gets delivered we put our arm down we then move forwards all of this has to be like literally choreographed without any rehearsal as such so uh, so me and me and my other friend simon literally spent five minutes we were walk, pacing it out work, working out how many paces you know counting doing doing all of these things told all the other guys what to do uh they said action we did this we did this whole thing which you know could take multiple takes um nailed it first time and uh, they were like oh yeah that was perfect right <laughs> we don't need to do it again and you know and it's literally it's like what's that like Six, 16 years after my first experience of being thrown into something that's going to just make, have all the eyes on you to make you look like an idiot. All of a sudden I'm like, right, okay, I understand how this works, how it makes people's life easier, how it looks better on screen, you know, most importantly. Um, and, it, and it's nice. It, it, it was really nice to get the reaction that they were surprised that you only needed one take because <laughs> it's like, well, you never get it in one take because you, it will never be, you know, it's never right. You're human. Time. <laughs> You're so, not you a know, real Cyberman. <laughs> yeah. It took, it took me 16, 17 years to finally go. Yes. I know what I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> 
Which I didn't think I didn't think about it too with her knowing like I guess if, if I'm remember right, she was also a pop singer as well, and she probably had that same sort of thing with her backup dancers and stuff on stage as well. Yeah, yeah, and and pro, I, you know, to be honest, pro, it's probably a lot tougher in the music industry than it is in the acting industry because the the music industry you're you're pre, you're not yourself. You're being steered. Um, yeah, you pretty much don't get a say over anything, uh, and and eventually it will drive you nuts. You know, Britney Spears is a big example of, you know how unfortunately how unfortunately people turned on Britney Spears but you know you know what if you would have if you would have had her life I reckon you would have probably lasted four or five weeks and you would have gone you know what I, you know I'm out um so it it you know it toughens you up <laughs> yes <laughs> And the problem is as well is that, that there's so many different elements all running in the background, but the, it comes down to this on screen. And if there's any mistake in sound, lighting, makeup, script, direction, acting, it the, the onus is on you. Um, and, and once I kind of understood that, I can now understand why some actors... Um, throw fits on set and and to be honest a lot of the time quite rightly so because everything comes down to this on screen and if everything you're doing isn't right when the whole thing comes out people will look at that actor and go they're no good let's not give them a job so it i think it's sometimes a constant battle with actors that they're basically being steered in a direction that that isn't going to be good for their career and it's is being able it's being able to be clever enough or or diplomatic enough to get your own way so that you don't end up like an idiot uh, yes I'll tell, tell you some brilliant ones that I've seen is uh, Ian McKellen as Gandalf in uh, in Lord of the Rings where they're shoot. I think they're shooting him on. It's either Lord of the Rings or The Hobbit. They're shooting him on a green screen, and you know it's a quick pickup shot. They're rushing, and they're like, "There's like a wind machine going," and they're like, "Oh, look, it's that over there," and like, and like, "Oh, can you do it again?" And he, and then you can see Ian's getting really quite annoyed because he's not. He he's he doesn't know what he's doing. He hasn't been told enough information. He's like, I'm and looking then, at a green screen. I don't see what yeah, you're telling me. <laughs> and you, 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 you can see the frustration boiling up. And then his professionalism kicks in. And then he's like, he goes, right, okay, yeah. Uh, if, we, if we know all this information, we can make this look amazing. And thank you very much, everybody, for your, for your input. It's literally, it's like, it's like you're, you're on the, like, this weird roller coaster where you're like, I'm messing everything up and I, I'm out of control because no one's given me enough direction to, to then go in. Well, if I just kick off, it isn't going to solve anything. So we got to kind of get wrestling a jello. It's, it's like yes. sometimes seeing it. So, so, and unfortunately, um, like the media, the media loves the story. Every, every news is clickbait. 
I, you know, I, I would say that's that's how everything's geared up. And you know, if somebody famous, ha- you know, does does a minor thing wrong, it all becomes a big hoo ha. But you know, you you're you're looking at people are like who are the best at what they do in the world, and there's very you know there's very high standards within all these people. And if if someone's messing it up, you you're gonna get frustrated. Oh yeah, I think there's a story too when it comes to something like that, like uh, Carl Weathers on The Mandalorian, because they use that different technology where it's not a green screen, it's this LED room, and he said it was so good at being an actor that has seen all the different ways of doing that, he's like, we all could act because it was not like overseeing just a green screen, he's like, we all saw the same lava and the same scene, so the scene was perfect because we were all acting against the same thing yeah yeah exactly it's like you know it's like you wouldn't you wouldn't act on stage and not have the other person or any of the props there yeah it's like you know acting isn't isn't about acting it's actually being real and honest in the moment and if you if you're seeing something you can be honest about how you react to it, but just acting as a, against a green screen or someone with a tennis ball on a stick and randomly trying to imagine what it's like is is, is pretty tough. But yeah, the, the the technology they've used on the Mandalorian is is, is incredible, and uh, you know, just for, from my point of view, you know, just the lighting effects that you actually get real time lighting. Uh, on surfaces and you know you can create set extensions immediately and um yeah yeah it's pretty it's pretty uh fascinating stuff now have you did you get to work on any of like star wars stuff uh with that or anything i was very fortunate that i got to work for five days on rogue one um i missed out Maybe I didn't miss out. Um, I didn't get to do any of the creature stuff. So, um, so Paul Casey, uh, he basically became the creature choreographer, movement. Basically, he was he was in charge of movement and uh, acting of the creatures uh, on the Star Wars, um, and he got to play those characters as well. Um, Aidan Cook. Um, and also Tom Wilson, who both worked on uh, Doctor Who, they they went off and did it as well, which which was amazing. It was you know really happy for them. Um, at the time, I was busy with other things and possibly thought I I still suffer with imposter syndrome and had it more so back then. So I thought I know Paul's working on it and I don't want to contact him because I feel like I'm not worthy enough. And then randomly, <laughs> when I did did contact him, he was like. He goes, yeah, yeah, that's right. I'll see if I can get you a job. But unfortunately, it didn't. It didn't happen. But I basically got to be um, in Rogue One in um, the Jeddah village scene, just as a just doing some background stuff, um, which for me was was absolutely a dream come true. You know, Star Wars was my big thing when I was a kid. And again, I'm like, right, I'm on a million dollars a day reshoot for a Star Wars movie. I'm I. This is this would be brilliant to see how things are actually done properly. Um, not that they're done pro- not done properly, but you know, there's there's levels. So so yeah, so that was that was 
an amazing experience and and randomly enough it was beautiful sunny weather in britain in pinewood where they were shooting it um uh so yeah that was pretty incredible you see my chin go, go past screen for one second so uh yeah i'll i'll, I'll take that as a win um one, knowing one, the fans they'll probably you'll probably have an action figure of just because I think there is there's one character from one of the movies where he's it's like a blender or something, and that character just runs by for a second, and that blender is now like cannot be found because people have bought that blender to make the little they reused it for Mandalorian. It's the thing that carries the the little metal things, but that was actually just somebody running through the hallways with that, and it was yeah. a fan little Easter egg. So well, you might have your well, own someone, little someone figure. could make a meme of me. And uh, it could be a picture of me looking smug going, you know, I'm in Star Wars. And then the next picture could just be a picture of my a blurred chin going past screen. <laughs> um, but, yeah, a, a fascinating story from that was that um, there was there was a scene with uh, 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 Cassian and Jin talking in the, the, Je the Jeddah village scene. And it was right before. It was right before they, they meet, I can't remember his name, Donnie Yen's character anyway. Yeah. Um, so that was the one thing that bugged me with Rogue One that was the names did not stick. When I watched Star Wars, I walked out there and I recognized I could repeat every single name. But the, in Rogue One, they were just very confusing. Maybe it was from my brain that they didn't stick very well. But anyway. So there was this scene and it was like a two shot and they were talking. And then one of the one of the assistant directors, basically, they, they, they wanted wipes. And a wipe is basically someone just walking past, walking past. So it looks busy. So, and and it's, it's quite random. You see, so you have you have two, two of the assistant directors either side of camera. There's like a line of people and they go and then you walk <laughs> past camera and then and you walk past camera. So. We did this on the first take that they were shooting. I think he did. He actually no. He was he wasn't actually pointing because we had costumes on that, that we couldn't see very well. So he was actually just pushing us like that. <laughs> so he basically does this. He pushes me uh, in front of camera, just as the camera operator leans forward to re re uh, recompose the camera, and I literally go straight into the camera. So, okay, million dollars a day, 12 hours a day, divide that, divide that into minutes, you know, that was expensive. <laughs> and I was like, and, I, and, I, and from a personal level, it's like, right, I've done all these fucking creature performances. I've done all these complicated things. I've been to Australia and New Zealand in front of 10,000 people in an arena performing all of these complicated things. And I'm a camera operator. I know how things work, and I've and I've just done the dumbest thing ever. Um, and literally, when they say cut, I just I just I just went like that. I just put my hands up in the air, and I I, I was gutted. I I felt like I I just took a turd basically. You're like they're the going to cut that scene. I know it. <laughs> um. So. And the camera operator, and I can't remember his name, he was basically the DOP for Rogue One. Um, and I can't, I can't remember his name. He's got fucking Academy Awards and shit. <laughs> so 
so basically I'm there like like it's the end of my world. And so they're getting ready to do another take and the Billy Piper moment comes back. He comes up to me. He's got Academy Awards and shit in his toilet. I'm I'm a nobody. He comes up to me and he says, he goes, on the next take, I'm not gonna move forwards, so you'll be fine walking past camera. So I'm like, oh, I know, I now know why you are one of the best cinematographers in the world and why you're at the top of your game, because you've got that humble, you know, you, you understand everything, the thing, the exactly the same thing that Billy Piper's got, that you're not, no one's more important than anything else. Things happen that are out of people's control and you've been nice. Um, so again, that was like, yeah, every time people get disillusioned with the industry, oh, fuck the industry, it's, it'll drive you mad and they're all cunts and stuff like this. You get those moments and you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, I know why people are, are the best at what they do, because, you know, they understand and they, they, they understand that anything can happen to anyone at any level. Oh, yeah. I think there's stories like with Guillermo del Toro when it comes to like the monsters and stuff, because I think he used to do that stuff. So he understands like when he's getting a shot, he's like, OK, I know this is going to be very difficult. We're going to do it this way. So it's easier on you. And I get the shot that I want because yeah. I know I can just say do it like that and it's going to hurt you. But I don't want to do that because he knows that from that back. I've heard a lot of stuff from him when he with his creatures and stuff for that as well. Now, have yeah. you got to work with Toro on anything? No, no, I haven't. Unfortunately, it's um, it's kind, it's it's kind of tricky, but at the same time, it works for my personality type because I'm I'm juggling careers all the time, lots of different things. Now, to be honest, it's probably not good because you people in general should be more focused and disciplined on one or two specific things. However, my brain doesn't really work very well unless I have constant randomness going on in my life, um, which to me is normal. That is, you know, that's yeah. my normal. Um, and then, but, but sometimes you don't realise that's your normal. And because you're different to everybody else you then start questioning what you're doing um until you meet other people that are the, that are the same or people that are much more successful and you hear them sort of saying the same stories which is why podcasts are so good but it also brought it home to me that i bumped into a friend of mine and he said uh, I, I said oh how's it going and he's like oh yeah, yeah i'm doing this and I, said, and, I, and I said oh i've been doing this he goes you don't even need to tell me what you've been doing. He said, I follow your Instagram channel. He goes, you know what? I vicariously live my life through looking at your Instagram channel. And immediately the, the, the latent comedian in me came out and said, oh, is your life that shit then? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, he, under he understood where I was getting at. But it was like, it was like, hang on a minute. Yeah, he's he's got a full time job. He does one job. He's married. He's got kids. That's it. That's that's what he does. That's what millions of people do, and and they're happy with it. And then if if you know, I'm 
unfortunately, we, we sometimes call them like normals, you know, people that live their life like that. To be honest, normals are generally a lot more happier than creative people. So, yes, there's a trade off. And then I got to think like, yeah, if you do look at my Instagram post, maybe to to the your average person, you're like, what what the fuck's going on? Like, there's I'm doing I'm fucking abroad somewhere doing something random. I'm on an electric skateboard doing this. I'm, I'm shooting a shooting a music video for Radiohead the next minute, and and you know, it's yeah, you kind of. You, you kind of have to kind of sometimes think, right, I could be the top of my game if I concentrated on one thing, but maybe it doesn't work for me because I'm just randomly throwing stuff. So, so yeah, so, so it's trying to get, it's trying to get a balance. So I love doing all the, all the creature performing, acting work. I'm actually starting more and more and more enjoying being in front of the camera than being behind because a lot of the jobs that I do where I'm a camera operator or, or a cinematographer, there's a massive amount of pressure that gets put on you. And I am a bit lazy. So being in front of the camera is quite good because you get a lot of time <laughs> off. <laughs> so I, I don't know. One, the thing is, one thing feeds to another. So I, I know exactly. Um, I know exactly what works if I shoot something. So I don't want to overshoot stuff. I don't want to shoot coverage. Oh, we do this shot. We'll do that shot. We'll do a wide shot just in case the performance is bad. We can cut back to this wide shot that you never need to see because you've seen it at the beginning as an establisher. So I, I basically un totally understand what's going to be used on camera, what's going to be seen, what's not going to be seen. Um, and then hopefully that then lends itself to when I'm in front of the camera and I know what to do and what not to do. Um, but yeah, so randomly going back to something else I've rambled on about was um, a lot of a lot of the stuff I do is I shoot stop motion animation um, and I kind of fell into that I'm trying to do more live action stuff because um, it's everybody in this industry likes to put you in a box so they're like well we don't need any puppet animation so we don't need you and I'm like no no I do more than that <laughs> but I've got to, I've got to do some amazing things. I've got to make uh, two music promos for Radiohead, uh, three for Cat Stevens, two for Run the Jewels, um, films um, the Christmas advert, the big Christmas advert in Britain for John Lewis, which is a big department store, which is always a big ooh, what's the John Lewis advert going to be like? Um, so yeah, so I've I've done all of these amazing amazing things, but I I know what I'm like. I need to go right. Yeah, I've done that. I need to keep moving <laughs> forwards. The other problem as well is the stop motion animation takes a very long time, which is great for the bank balance because it means you have to work a lot of days. Uh, it's not great for the pace that my mind works at. Uh, coming back to my problem solving dyslexic side of my brain that basically you know i could walk into a situation and they'll be like well yeah this is what we have to do in this shot and then literally within a few seconds i'm like yeah i know exactly what to do <laughs> is that problem solving thing unfortunately with doing animation because it takes such a long time is like yeah i've solved it all done but it might take three days to shoot the whole thing and then i'm kind of like oh 
Oh, yeah, I think like Robot Chicken that like for a fifteen minute episode, I think they said takes like a month to do it. Yeah, well, well, put put it this way: the um, there's never enough money. They, they they say, oh, there's not enough budget. That's that's the very first in the industry. It's basically the very first thing is there's never enough money, even though before they know what the project is, who's in it, what's happening, there's not enough money. So that's 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 the number one priority in the entertainment industry. There's not enough money. What can we can we what can we get for the least amount of money? Um, but if if uh, if you watch the Burn the Witch Radiohead music promo, um, yes, yes, that was from literally before any puppet was made to it was being released on YouTube. That was two weeks. Holy crap! Um, and that was seven days seven days of shooting. Oh my uh, gosh, which was insane! And it and, and I've got some behind the scenes photographs of me on the last day, and I look like I'm gonna die. <laughs> yeah, I know. That, I think they said like for when they did Nightmare Before Christmas, that that whole movie took like three years to make. Yeah, in just with multiple a... units, but. So the director Chris Hopel that I work with, he's he's uh, he's a good fan of animation that looks like animation. So if if you watch Nightmare Before Christmas, and if you were none the wiser, you could say, "Well, that's CGI because it's too perfect." Yeah. Um, and you know, watching the the behind the scenes stuff, the tiny little little cogs to make you know the mouths and everything move i love nightmare before christmas no no sorry not nightmare before christmas beg your pardon corpse bride yes so corpse bride when i watched it before i even knew anything about it i was i was like is that cgi because it looks too perfect where nightmare before christmas you can see the rough the roughness of it yeah so Chris that I work with, he he likes the roughness of animation because it looks real. Um, and I know that they've had a few a few things with Ardman Animation when they make their Wallace and Gromit movies that they have to put imperfections back in. Uh, so they, have, they have to CGI imperfections into it because it looks too clean. Um, yeah, so so the roughness of it's quite good to one extent, because you're like, oh, it looks a bit rough, that's fine, we'll shoot it. The only problem is it accelerates what's expected of you. Oh, yeah, we can shoot this entire music video in a week. So you end up literally just going bonkers, just working all these hours, shooting loads of stuff. Um, it's one of those love-hate things. Is I, I listened. I listened to David Fincher a lot, a lot, because I love his films. He's nuts. Um, yes. After, literally, after every genius, brilliant piece of art he makes, he hates it, and all he does is complain about it. But I can understand where he comes from because it's you can't look at it anything objectively whilst you're making it. It's it's that um, there's a word for it which I forgot. Is that moment where an artist is create is painting a painting, and it's going everything's going wrong. It's getting out of hand. It's it's all turning to shit, and then you bring it back, and then it becomes this beautiful thing. 
Um, so, so literally after every job, I'm like, I'm done with this. It's totally done my head in. But what I've learned to do is not watch what I've done until months afterwards. Um, is a very good is a very good exercise because what will happen is when you're looking at a shot, all you're remembering is I was up at midnight. It was freezing cold. I had to try and manipulate this camera to go through this really difficult thing. And that's all you're looking at. Everybody else is looking at it with totally different eyes. Um, but you, you can't be objective. So a little trick that I learned was don't hate yourself. Don't want to quit after every job because you're, you're going to want to do it. But don't look at it until you step back, bit of a call back, look out of the window every five minutes. In this case, it would be every two or three months. Then come back <laughs> and uh, look at what you've done. And I guess that helps like with, with Doctor Who it being like a, almost a year after you filmed it coming out actually being watched. But the funny thing with that is, is like, I'm watching it and I'm like, oh, yeah, I don't even remember what we did. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and uh, you know, and also you don't know the full story. You only know the scenes that you're in. Yeah. So, so sometimes it spoils it a bit because you would have done a scene. You would have gone, oh, we rehearsed this. We were brilliant. We marched. We stopped. We did all these things. And then you'll see it for one second on screen. And you're like, oh. Okay, um, so sometimes I prefer watching episodes that I'm not in. But then, what is nice is you're then going, oh, well, now I understand what we did and why we did that and and how the story ties up. But you know, love being on the show. But some of my best experiences were doing live shows, live performances. Uh, Doc Two Live 2010, Doc Two Proms 2013. Then the Doctor Who Symphonic Spectacular in 2014 and 15. That was in Australia, New Zealand, and also the UK. That I know why I know why actors love doing theatre. Um, it's not for the money, because theatre pays shit. It's having that immediate reaction from an audience is is you know. It's everything. If, you, if you're filming a TV show or a, or a movie, again, you could be against a green screen. You could be looking at somebody's hand, you know, going, oh, my God, my daughter's just died and I'm unhappy. But, you know, if you're if you're performing live, you you're you're there. Everything is everything is real. And and yeah, Brisbane, there was 10,000 people in an arena and um there's an orchestra, a full orchestra playing the music for Doctor Who, which was one of the most incredible experiences of my life, hearing this music you love through a full orchestra. And uh, they were playing all the Strange, Strange Creatures, uh, Murray Gold's music. Ben Foster was there, like, conducting on stage. And 10,000 people in an arena. They have big video screens. And I was dressed as the Jadoon captain. And then I walked front of house towards the stage and then basically a camera goes on me and um on the big screens people can see the Jadoon captain walking into the audience and then you hear a, a roar a cheer from these people um and like 
you you cannot you cannot bottle that feeling that was you know it was literally that's just one of the most amazing feelings i've ever had in my life um and i got off the stage and literally i was i was buzzing i literally had a high for 12 hours afterwards um and uh, and yeah and, and and every time i hear a hear a, an actor or or especially comedians stand up comedians you know talking about why why they perform live um you know you, you you're not doing it for the money you're not always doing it for the validation of your audience because they can turn on you but when it when it hits you're going to get a rush like nothing you've ever experienced oh yeah like i i totally get that like i used to sing a lot for and i went to a big church and the first time they brought me to the main thing there was probably like six or 700 people and it was just after i got done because I, I was like you're not like you tell people like you're there i'm singing i'm doing it but you're not there like you're you're in the and then when you get off you're like whoa fuck i just did that whoa yeah. holy shit yeah it, it is amazing however the, the there's a caveat you know what goes up must come down and what you do find especially with musicians and rock stars they get that buzz wow they get it big time when they get off stage they want to keep that buzz going and basically <laughs> you turn to substances to keep that buzz going and then you get back on stage to get the buzz you get back off stage you get your buzz uh and then it all falls to pieces so it's uh you you have to you have to embrace embrace your highs and your lows and and you you can't keep the party going. Yes. <laughs> you can, but it will be a very short party. Oh, yes. Now for you, what was your either director or uh, actor or character actor? What was your holy shit moment of someone you got to work with that you're like, how the hell did I get in this position to be in their presence? Uh, well, to be honest, every every day. Um, everybody, every day, everyone I meet, I got imposter syndrome, so I, I hate myself. No, uh, it's slightly <laughs> accurate. Um, possibly when, possibly when I met David Tennant, not so much because I actually didn't know who he was. Um, every day on set with Peter Capaldi, it was literally you. I, I just couldn't even function properly because he, it, it's just his face. He's not, he's not real. It, you're, look at, you're looking at this iconic face and it's very difficult to go, well, he's just a bloke because he doesn't look like just a bloke. He, he, it almost transcends who, who he looks. And, and Peter is literally probably the nicest guy you could ever meet. But every time I would, he would tr have a conversation, literally, I'm just going like, <laughs> which, which is actually quite nice because I know that, you know, I've been to probably 50 odd conventions in my time. And I know that fans sometimes literally have meltdown moments and just stuff like that. I can totally understand that because I get it all the time 
Oh yeah, it's and with David especially, he's just such a sweet guy. Like I know I got a photo op with him at 2019 Dragon Con, and didn't realize how tall that guy was. Even though I'm kind of short, I'm five five. I was like, oh, he's, holy he's crap! Tall. Yeah, I couldn't put my arm around his shoulder. Yeah, <laughs> my buddy uh, who's six one was like easy, and I was like, okay, I got to put my arm around your waist because I'm not tall enough to reach that high. <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's um. Yeah, it's, it's a weird thing. It's a weird thing that the brain does where you you see something that, that transcends reality and then you, you enter it into reality. And, and, and I guess it's your brain chemistry and your neurons aren't quite functioning right because they're, they're not quite joined up and, and you kind of... I, I, I basically, I call it I carried I carried a watermelon moment, referencing Dirty Dancing, where where Baby meets Patrick Swayze for the first time. She has that kind of like, oh my god, he's he's really hot, and she goes, oh, I carried a watermelon, and then she goes like, oh. So <laughs> so I, I I I like to call it the oh oh when someone says it, yeah yeah yeah, I carried a watermelon moment. Yeah, I totally understand that. Yeah, and it's also it seems like it's one of those same things it's like as a small five-year-old kid like you can't accept the concept of like barney being like real and then you see like somebody it's not the real actor but you see somebody in that costume you're like holy crap this character from the tv is in my real reality in front of me yeah and and you know it also, yeah, it also brings. Well, I could tell you a million, a million stories about Peter Capaldi on, on, or, or there'll be a million fans out there that could tell you what he's like when they've met him. He, he would, they would be filming on location. There's always groups of people when they're filming on location, and one occasion they would, they would shoot in a scene, and Peter basically said. Can you give me five minutes? Because those fans have been waiting for about an hour and I'm going to go and speak to them. And during shooting a scene. And, you know, Peter's old and wise enough to go, you know what? The only reason why I'm here is because I'm with those people over there. And the reason why I'm here is people have taken time to, you know, given me a chance or or put themselves out to me this is my theory anyway um and also hang on you're number one you're dot two you're number one on the call sheet they're not going to tell you off are they yeah <laughs> um and and uh yeah there's a there's a story that there's a guy uh, called adam orford and he turned up on the set of uh the girl the the, the lady that lived the girl who died the lady that lived, the second uh, one with Maisie Williams. Oh yeah, yeah, where they shoved the thing to bring her back to life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was in like a house in the middle of nowhere, and it was freezing cold, and it was at night. Um, and and Adam was there, and literally Adam, he, he's one of these guys that literally will turn up everywhere. It's like, oh, he's finding out where it is, and he's filming. So Adam turns up. Peter comes out, and uh, he goes, "Oh, Adam, how you doing?" Um, he goes, oh, well, yeah, we're not doing much at the moment. Do you want to come and have a look at the, the house? So he's like, oh, can you, can you get Adam a coat? Because he's a bit, he's a bit uh, cold. And 
gave him a hot pie, and then he, he did a little private tour for Adam. So, so yeah, so you know, if if you know any interaction that I have with with people and you know whatever low low level celebrity I do have, uh, you know, I just go, you know what, I'm, I'm going to make sure that that person's going to come away feeling better than before they met me because because one one little interaction in life that that makes somebody feel good will you know stick and possibly have a knock-on effect and and maybe develop into something great later on yes now when it comes to that were you on set for when they had john hurt on no, I was in that episode, so I was one of the Daleks in the Time War, and uh, oh, here's a fun little fact. You know that the, the scene where, w- with the undergallery, where they go down, they've got the big painting of, of David and, and the Queen, and then they go and see the Zygons. Oh, yeah, yeah. So if you, if you watch that scene, so you've got the Doctor and the, Cla- Doctor and the Clara, and they walk into that undergallery... There's two unit soldiers behind them. Then they got the reverse camera angle and you've got the painting with two unit soldiers that side. So it's cheaper to employ two people, get them standing there, get them standing there. But if you're if you press pause, you will just about make out that it's my face in both. Um, and then when you go into the under gallery with the Zygons, so the, the statues that were under the shrouds and now they're Zygons. Yes. <laughs> uh, there were only two Zygons, which was um, Paul Casey and Aidan Cook. And, you know, basically you can do a lot with two if you multiply them up and it's cheaper, obviously, coming back to how the business works <laughs> so they were like yeah well there's six statues there's two zygons but we want it appearing like there's more zygons so when they come to life we want all of them moving or, or four of them so um if you actually look at that scene as the doctor and clara walk in you've got the the zygons like this you look at the the shrouded zygon to the right i believe the the shape is exactly the shape of a unit soldier's helmet underneath the shroud. Uh, that's <laughs> a coincidence. And then the weird coincidence was was that when they made the um, the five-ish doctors, uh, Peter Davison's fan film about the fiftieth. Yes, <laughs> they used the same gag that the doctors were under the zygons. Um, <laughs> So yeah, there's a there's a funny little uh, Easter egg there, but yeah, unfortunately, I didn't get I didn't get to meet John Hurt, um, which which was a real shame. Um, I could yeah I, I I could tell you story I I heard stories about things that he said on set which I won't repeat. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, it, John, John Hurt doesn't suffer any fools, put it that way. <laughs> Now, how was it for you, like, seeing the classic series, like, seeing that makeup of the full Zygon, like, in person? The, the, well, the Zygon, obviously, you look back at the classic series, and you, you can kind of go, mm, yeah, I can see what they did with what they had. 
Um, but the, the new Zygons were phenomenal. Uh, again, made by Millennium FX. Um, it was a it was a full sculpt, a clay like a clay sculpt that then a mold was done from. And don't quote me on this, but I think possibly the person who sculpted it is a guy called Gary Pollard. Uh, if it wasn't Gary Pollard, if you Google him, he's done some pretty incredible stuff anyway. Um, uh, and then basically Paul and Aiden were in these Zygons and it was um, it wasn't pleasant, put it that way. It's thick foam latex, um, which is, is basically like having a memory foam mattress wrapped around you. Um, and then the face was stuck to their face and then blended in. Um, wasn't easy, extremely hot uh, in those things. Um, but I think I think Aiden came up with a quite a weird kind of accident that they actually used that he if he I think he could breathe through his mouth, but not his nose. But if he breathed through his nose, he actually inflated the prosthetic on his face and his his face could actually pulsate like this by breathing through his nose. So it was a weird random accident. It was like, oh, I, I'm going to breathe like this. And then you've got this weird pulsating going on in his face um but i've got to try and think if i actually saw them on set if they were in the same no they were in the scene because it was was it, was it because there was the two osgoods there was the zygon osgood yeah there, there was the two of her dressed the same way and you had to figure out which one was the yeah yeah i think one right. had a bow tie and one had tom's scarf yeah however technically i was a zygon as well um, so in the episode, uh, the Zygon inversion, the, um, the, the, the president's, um, uh, Boeing jumbo jet is shot down. So the doctor parachutes onto the beach. Um, then he walks off the beach and then he has a conversation with two policemen in a police car where he says, oh, it's Dr. John Disco, um, you know, did you see the plane crash? And the, the policemen are just staring. So technically the policemen are supposed to be Zygons with the perception filter or whatever it is. But <laughs> look again, one of those policemen, yes, they are me. Um, <laughs> doing, doing my best acting, which is generally not talking. It's just staring. So I, I had a stare off with the attack eyebrows which you're like half the town and doctor who is usually me <laughs> yeah which yeah which that that was but again that scene was literally five minutes before the end of the day rush 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 do it quickly do it quickly no direction given to me so my eyeline was going between the doctor and osgood and then i was like no you messed it up you should just be staring at the doctor i'm like oh, why didn't you tell me that but I, I know now. <laughs> um, but yeah, so, so, um, yeah, so today I've been in 48 episodes, I think. Oh, wow. That's awesome. Which, which is, which is good. But, um, yeah, I guess I'm doing something right. They're like, um, they keep bringing me back. <laughs> And the thing that I'm doing right more than anything else is not eating cake and burgers. <laughs> Otherwise, I won't fit in a costume. 
Um, but uh, yeah, there is there is some sort of uh, eating disorder diet that does go on with uh, people that perform in creature suits. The problem is though, is what you've got, you've you've got a creature which is an analogue of a human, but what it actually is is a human inside of something that you add to. So you've got to have quite a skinny person inside of this humanoid analogue, otherwise it makes it look even bigger. So um so every time I know I've got a role coming up, I, I do one of two things. I sort my diet out because I am impartial to eating lots of cookies and junk food and stuff like that, even though I managed <laughs> to burn it off. And the other thing is I have to stop going to the gym um, because you literally have to go into atrophy because the thing is that you could be buff and in shape, but you're not going to fit in a costume because it's going to be too small. So, so as soon as I get notice of being in a costume, that's that's when my eating disorder manifests itself, and I and I literally stop eating all carbohydrate. I'm just constantly just eating meat and fish and and eggs, which to be honest is actually pr- probably quite healthy and salad. Um, <laughs> and then literally, I stop doing any type of physical exercise possible because I got to waste my my muscles away. So. Uh, yeah. yeah, I think there's a story with Doug Jones about the fish character from Hellboy that yeah. uh, he literally was like, yeah, the reason I'm in the suit is because the actor who does the voice was not physically skinny or lanky enough to be in the suit. Yeah, yeah, exactly. What what you're doing is you, you're having something which to the eye is humanoid, but it's a bulked up version of a real human so you've got to be smaller um but yeah just 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 embrace your 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 eating disorders and body dysmorphia you know you want to be (laughs) showbiz kid you're gonna have to start yeah and one another life lesson but one of my life lessons is is like be serious about what you do but don't take the business seriously Yes. Now, uh, what for any like any show or character from Doctor Who or anything else? What would be your like dream creature role to be? Like, what suit would you like? I would love to be that character. Um, I would. I would have liked to be have been a stormtrooper in in uh, the the new Star Wars movies. Uh, and I, I know I know a lot of my friends who have done it. Um, and possibly they don't come across that it's as much of a big deal that I would have made of it, really. Um, it's difficult, it's difficult to say. Possibly, possibly one thing that had a big impact with me as a kid and relating to Doctor Who was, um, the Sea Devils. Um, that that really scared the crap out of me, and especially when they came out of the water. So if they ever brought back this, well, the Silurians came back, which kind of ish similar. Yes, but, but the Sea Devils, um, yeah, that that would be really cool. And I know they had a lot of problems with the Sea Devils trying to actually sink them under the water because the the foam latex made them float. So. Uh... <laughs> 
Now, there's one that I, I would love to see them take a modern take on, because if you look at it, it's so... You can tell what they tried to do in the back in the day. I can't remember what they were called, but they looked basically like lizards in like a sleeping bag. Uh, well, there's the maggots. Yeah, they look like well, the main leader looked like he was just like a maggot thing, but they literally look like a guy with like lizard face paint and a green sleeping bag. <laughs> oh God, what was that? My my my. And he would always not... do like the tongue thing, like this weird little sexual tongue thing, and I was like, oh God, that makes it so weird. Unfortunately, my my uh, uh, classic Doctor Who nerdism doesn't really uh, rate that high, and I'll get loads of people shouting at me. <laughs> I didn't know that, but, uh... but yeah, it was just so weird looking, and I was like, I wonder how they would take that as like a modern take because when I say sleeping bag, it literally looks like somebody just face sticking out of a sleeping bag to make the maggot look. Well, back well back then, it was it was literally it was like, what have we got lying around? Um, let's make something of it. So there was a a costume. It was used, and oh, I'm going to fuck this up. I think it was used in one of the Ice Warrior episodes. And that costume was then reused as Boss's costume in um, Empire. Yes, I was just about to say that. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, I think it's either, it was a, they were like a space astronaut. And, yeah. And it's the, uh, and it's the astronaut outfit that, and they just put the Bosca's mask on top, and that's all yeah. they did. Yeah. So that that's a lot of the time is it's like we've got no money. Uh, yeah, let's just use this. Um, or they, or it's a case of oh, we've decided we got a new character, we need it tomorrow. And the the horror stories I heard of Rick Baker. Um, sorry, just just quickly, the that the best story of Rick Baker was. Um, I don't know if you heard this, was on uh, the set of The Wolfman. I have not. Right. So the I think it was the production manager called him into his office and he's like, we had this deliveries, all this fur, and, and uh, it's really expensive. And, uh, you know, is all of this necessary? And Rick says there, there was like a, a poster, like a pre-production poster saying Wolfman. And he goes... He goes up to the poster and he puts his hand over Wolf and he goes, without this fur, the movie will be called Man. <laughs> which, which is, but the thing is, is, is I, I love it. I love hearing that. It's like, literally, it's like you're ordering stuff to make a wolf and then you're, you're getting shit from someone for ordering it. Um, so, so, yeah, so again, a lot of the time it's like oh we need this tomorrow can you go to the supermarket and just buy this new creature off of the shelf and you're like no we can't we've got to try and put stuff together so um so yeah I, I love stuff like that where you go hang on a minute isn't that the isn't that the prop or isn't that the the so-and-so costume and you know oh yeah like i think like the lightsabers themselves like the reason it's so hard to replicate the old school hilts is because back then there were like the old school 30 and 40 30s and 40s cameras were just shit. They were just all over the place. And they're like, Hey, let's use those metal pipe thingies 
to use yeah. it. And so now that those cameras are been, everybody knows that those cameras are high as shit to buy now. So yeah, you can't necessarily make screen accurate. It was the old, uh, the old flash guns with the bulbs, the one. Yeah. Yeah. I think. And at the time they were super cheap for them, but now they're yeah. ungodly. <laughs> yeah. I don't know whether my nerd level's gone wrong, but it could have been a Mets flash. I'm not sure. But, um, anyway but yeah but it's funny that also occasionally and you get like oh the original lightsaber is coming up for sale and it's like well there were quite a few original lightsabers that were actually used <laughs> i did i did have a great um experience of uh getting getting to go to the mopop museum in seattle mm. uh which was which was fantastic and it was weird. This this answered a load of weird kind of questions that have been going around in my head. So the prop store would have an auction every year and they, they would auction off all of this, um, you know, iconic stuff. And then you look then you look at you're like Ripley's flamethrower from Alien, fifty thousand uh, dollars. The, the the hoverboard from Back to the Future 2, fifty thousand dollars. They're like, what? What the fuck? Lo and behold. They were bought by, like, possibly at the time or, or previous, the second richest man on the planet, who was Paul Allen, <laughs> from Microsoft. And, you know, bless him, is literally like, right, I've got all the money in the world. I love sci-fi movie props. I want them to be seen, and I'll stick them in my museum. So, um, so yeah, so that was amazing. And, and the weird, the, the very weird, funny thing is, is going there, and I'm looking at all these props, and I'm like, they look like a bag of shit. <laughs> the camera's very forgiving. Uh, the camera's not forgiving on the human face, because that's the thing that we recognize more than anything else on this planet. The camera's very forgiving on a sci-fi prop, because you don't know what you're looking at. Um, so so what, what always makes me laugh when fans say to me, like, oh, yeah, I'm, 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 doing, I'm making this screen accurate. I'm like... Do you want it to be screen accurate or do you want it to actually look good? <laughs> <laughs> and to be fair, most fans' props are probably better than what they actually do on the production because there, there isn't a time constraint a lot of the time with a, fan, a fan's prop and they care about what they're doing. Um, so a lot of the times the, the, the fan... Uh, interpretations are actually much better than uh, than what's actually used on screen. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, so, well, the last year has been obviously a bit weird. For some reason, I'm not sure why that is. Uh, <laughs> but I, I've really missed out on going to um, conventions. Um, uh, yeah, which is a shame because I normally, I, I normally, over the last few years, been coming to the States probably at least, Four or five times a year. Yeah, I think that's how I came to mention was through uh, uh, through Hulanta, uh in yeah. 2019. So yeah, it's it's you know being uh, being the thing. The funny thing was is that I've, I I kind of through life kind of almost like gone. Oh, I've na I've navigated something that I'm. This is it. This is the thing that I love doing more than anything else, which is generally. Going to going to a sci-fi convention, and then getting people excited about the silly little TV show that I worked on, 
and they and then it changing their perception or their life or they're just just having a good time just by telling a story and i'm like i get to travel the world tell a story um it makes me people feel better so i was like right i've i've hacked the system yes this is my thing and then no i can't, I can't do it anymore so um so i really yeah i really appreciate um coming on your podcast and i've probably rambled on for about two and a half oh, hours no, you're good like i said no, my first well, it, ever guest it, it means that <laughs> i guess something's right with this um with this conversation and also as well i've probably been bottling up all the shit that's come out of my mouth for for ages so <laughs> it's, it's, it's it means uh it means a lot to me that i can basically just uh just talk about stuff yeah, like I said, I'm glad that you answered back and was like, hey, yeah, I'd be glad to. I'm like, sweet, awesome. Because I know it's like I told a lot of people, I'm like, they're like, how do you guess? I'm like, mm, yeah, I can ask their agent. I can send five emails, but um, I can't guarantee I'm going to get them. <laughs> well, the problem is, problem is with an agent, an agent makes money by making money for their client. Yes. So, uh, you know, not saying all agents are, are money grabbers, but it's, you know, um, a, pod, a podcast to me are so important because I've over probably the last five or six years listening to podcasts, I've learned more about the industry. I've learned more about life in general over the last five years than I, I've, I've had previous to that just by listening to people's converse, uh, conversations or or candid conversations. And it and it's free, so oh, yeah. So I'm, I'm basically I've taken I've taken a lot from the universe. So I'm I'm basically having to reciprocate by <laughs> keeping that that balance that balance in the force. Yes, <laughs> it's like I had H. John Benjamin on. Uh, if you ever seen Bob's Burgers, uh, yeah. Uh, he was, he was, he sent me a thing. He was like, yeah, he's like, I don't really do podcasts, but I saw you didn't have a lot of numbers. And he was like, you seem like a nice kid. So I figured he's like, you're probably going to be the only podcast I do. So uh, if they keep knocking my door, it's your fault. And I was like, okay. And his is the highest grossing one so far. Like, I think like, I, his is his point now that I'm like, hey, I've had H. John Benjamin. Like, okay, I'll listen to your podcast. Yeah. You got, you got to get, you got to give that bump. Um, you know, going going back, you know, Joe Rogan used to get three hundred people listening to his live podcast. Yes, yeah, and that, that's uh, that's uh, you know, uh, to to quote someone else, I I do quite like uh, to quote Gary V. Be patient. <laughs> yes, be patient. Work hard, and um, you know, you could create something that's that's quite extraordinary, really. Oh, yeah, like with my merch that I just made recently, like, like I told my mom, I was like, it's not the money. I was like, just having somebody have a shirt or a sticker or something that just has a logo that I created is just cool as shit to me. Just having my name out there is just yeah. awesome. Yeah. It's also, it's also like an identifier, and especially for, um, you know, like back in the day or for, for nerdy culture. It's like if you if I walk down the street and if I see some, the thing is, there's T-shirt companies that, that 
do it all. You know, so I had like a T-shirt with um, U.S. Colonial Marines. So it's like a fake T-shirt that was based off of the, the Marines from Aliens. Um, yes. But, you know, you, you know, I, I've walked down the, the street and seen someone and they're, they're you know, they're subtle. So you don't, it's not in your face. So, you know, I've seen someone who had like a Wayland Industries T-shirt and I've gone like, oh, yeah, I bet he's cool. So <laughs> it, it's kind of like it's just like a it's like just like a little nod to uh, to like, yeah, yeah. I, you know, I see where you're coming from. Oh, yeah. It's like, OK, I think we can be friends. Like I like like I told my dad, like he's like, I know I'm not even though I host a podcast. He was like, you're not the social person. But he's like, when you're at these conventions, it's like a whole other person. I was like, yeah, I'm with my tribe. I was like, he's like, you just had a conversation with a guy about because he had a what was it? I think like a some shirt from like a comic book. And he was like, you just had a 20 minute conversation with a random stranger. I was like, yeah, because I. I'm like, we feel safe because we know, like, hey, you like the same weird thing that I do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's one of those things is that um, it, it's a skill that, that an interviewer uses that a lot of the time, like traditional formal interviews, people are very reluctant to open up. And it is basically is the skill of the interviewer to, to basically try and navigate some common ground and then when you find that common ground all of a sudden it, you you can see it in interviews someone would just open up and they'll just go blah, blah, blah and it, it will just <laughs> literally all come out because you feel safe because you know that you've got this this sort of mutual thing that you you both kind of appreciate oh yeah it's why like i always do probably like a you know 10 to 15 minute kind of just a shooting the shit before i actually like start the actual interview i'm like i want to get you comfortable kind of you're it's cool. We can say whatever, you know, you can swear, you can talk about whatever you want to talk about. It's open range. And like, I love talking to Minnie Cohen, but it was kind of with hers. You could tell a difference in my interviewing term because I only had like 30 minutes with her and we didn't really have that chit chat time. So I was yeah. like, okay, got to get to the questions about Scooby-Doo and the facts of life. Uh, but it was, it was good talking to her, but you could definitely tell there was a difference between my other interviews that are like an hour, two to three hours long where we can yeah. actually like, have real conversation and open up, you know? Yeah. Well, a, a kind of, um, Chris Hardwick was very good at that because virtually every, every nerdist podcast that he did, the, the, um, interviewee would say, Oh, are we recording? Cause, cause <laughs> he wouldn't tell them. And, but, it, you know, yes, the, it's, it's, it's one of those funny things. It's like, if you, if you put a camera on, uh, you know, there's some people that will be the world's greatest actors. You could just meet them in the street and you go, oh, my God, you, you're just captivating. As soon as you put a camera on them, they'll just go and lock up. And it, it's, it's that really nice thing that, yeah, don't don't tell them that you're recording. Just just it just happens. Oh, yeah. Like I've done some small films here and there with like buddies, just, you know, just making indie films, like, you know, iPhones and crap. And the best scenes are like. We've done like, okay, got the script, let's do it. And then they, you'll get a better scene after like, okay, we fucked that up and just laugh for a minute. And they're like, okay, okay, let's go. Okay, okay. Then yeah. the one right after we cut the shit was the best scene that we took. Yeah, yeah. Cool, excellent. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Hi there, I'm John Davey, creature actor from Doctor Who. And you're listening to the Fandom Squad podcast.
All right, this is going to be another episode of the Phantom Squad podcast. John, would you like to say our outro? Enjoy the madness, and I do. You are now leaving the Phantom Squad podcast. I don't want to go.